He who is buried here shall henceforth have no name, shall cease to exist in the minds of man as she has ceased to exist in life. For thousands upon thousands of years she lay there, perfectly preserved in all her beauty, in all her evil. Across the centuries to another time, to another place, she is back amongst the living to claim all that is hers. You're ready to kill me? No, 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 no! To threaten those who woke her from her eternal sleep. Resurrection? A rebirth for Terra. Complete control. Over life, over death. Who are you? It was her, as large as life, standing over there. No! It happened! You have to help me. You know its power. I have no mind left, no will. In the name of Terra, she is back. To destroy those who helped to raise her evil flesh and blood from the mummy's tomb. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I am sitting here with my co-hosts, Ali Chapel and Paul Farrell. Everyone, how are you this evening? Doing good. That it? That's all we got? Good. You know, it's Doing fine. good I, is my go-to answer. It's like it my go-to is. doing. Yeah, awesome. and, and let me tell you, I'm fine if you change it up. Um, the, <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. Well, well, I'm a little depressed. <laughs> yeah, we are. I, I should say, right here at the very top, I brought the room down about five seconds before we started recording. So if everyone's energy seems a little off, that's uh, that's my bad. We were talking about COVID and whatnot, and I'm in Florida, and the world's ending slowly. And uh, that's the energy we're kicking this episode off with. So uh, other than all of that, how is everyone? How have you all been in the last two weeks since we uh, recorded some uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde? Good. Very good. What? Wow. <laughs> you know what? If we if we don't turn things around in the oh next five God. minutes, I'm just gonna call it, and we're gonna try again next week. I, I've been. I, I don't want to push it back again because I miss talking to you two. Like it was sad not doing it for a week. I was like, oh, my podcast friends. <laughs> All right. I should let everybody know just before we started recording this evening, Allie was nice enough to make a neat Hammer Pub logo that we actually threw onto our uh, our Twitter page, like our profile pic. And uh, I think it's super cool. It's uh, it's funny. We had sort of leaned on all the old Screamatic stuff before, like the older logos and whatnot that we had developed for not only the podcast, but the original YouTube show. <clears throat> and there was nothing really sort of separating Hammer Pub visually from, uh, you know, what had come before and really sort of, I don't know, mark this off as a side project of its own. I think the closest that we had was a, uh, a picture of Christopher Lee with bloodshot eyes, which, I mean, admittedly is pretty damn great. But um, no, Allie, thank you very much for that. And uh, also, Allie has made some buttons, which none of you can have. Yeah, we're, they're not for sale. They're not. They're special but, uh, buttons. Only the cool kids get them. Exactly. 
And that makes them super rare, which means that all of you listeners out there are going to want them all the more, but you can't have them. No, we're just going to constantly post photos of them and rub it in your face that they're not for sale. Now, Allie, at this point, what you're going to do is like wait two weeks and then throw like one or two up on eBay under different names and just charge like crazy for them. (laughs) Oh, you have such high hopes for what we are. <laughs> hey, we, we, believe it or not, we, we have a, a solid listener base. They're they're all mutes, but they are out there. Um, no, so I don't know, gang. How do we how do we start this episode off? I I got a crazy idea. What if now? Bear with me. What if we talk about some movies that we've seen recently over the course of the last two weeks? Like maybe two titles each. Would that be crazy if we did that? I mean, I'm open to it. It's a yeah, weird thought, but it's like it's a concept. We could go with. It. <laughs> Do I have to talk about horror, or can I like veer off into other yeah. genres? Paul, I'm gonna say that you have to talk about horror, but I think you should talk about anything you want instead. Okay, because that's like, what I usually. Do as long anyway. as it's not Space Jam too, but you can know. I talk about Cruella? <laughs> Actually, yeah, you know. <laughs> I think without even having seen the movie that there's a case to be made that Cruella is horror adjacent. So uh, I've heard the Dalmatians are damn demons in it. So uh, you know what? Maybe they deserve to be skinned is what Can I think. Can I talk about is. The Prom? I don't even know what that is. It's not a horror movie. It's, it's a musical not- with Meryl Streep. In okay, it. that's what I thought. I'm like, I've seen that one for sure. It's just Unfortunately, easy- it also has James Corden, but... And like Nicole Kidman's in it as well. Nicole right? Kidman's in okay, it too. We... It is a bizarre cast. It's a weird movie. What is the deal? What did I miss? Where I think even you know what I'm gonna go ahead and note. Like even though I've been curious about it myself, admittedly, it took Trace Thurman to take to Twitter and just straight up ask everybody, "Hey, why do you all hate James Corden?" So I will ask, "Hey, why does everybody hate James Corden?" Uh, he's very well known for treating the people who works work for him very, very poorly. Really? Is the simple oh, I didn't know that. I was just like, I don't know. He's awkward, I guess. Um, I have no problem. So what I'll say is I have no problem with, like, him, you know? Like, he doesn't... I think some of it... You know how some people just get, like, annoyed by Ricky Gervais? You yeah, know, but, yeah, like some people just don't like him. No, I'm not. No, I know. But like, well, <laughs> that's the thing is like some people just don't like him. Like they don't like his comedy. They don't think he's very charismatic and they don't want to watch stuff with him in it. I think some people have that with James Corden. But but there's a lot of stories out there and you can Google it of just like just stories of him being just kind of an insufferable jerk uh, to the people that work for him. He, he's just. He's very demanding. He's not very appreciative. Um, he's sort of high and mighty about stuff. He's he's not done anything, as far as I can tell, that might be like, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, cancelable. Cancelable. <laughs> right? like, I like that. It's, it's not, he hasn't done something like illegal or something really horrific to some some underling but it's just kind of general crappiness so it just makes it harder to um want to support him i think i think the uh, controversy with prom is he he plays a gay man and one people wish that they would have casted an actual 
gay man to play that role, because certainly there are plenty yeah. of actors capable of, of doing that. Um, and two, his portrayal is admittedly fairly stereotypical. Um, stereotypical. Yeah. Now, the argument would be, well, that's how the role's written, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, if you're going to cast someone like him, who already is a divisive figure... In that kind of role, like you're sort of inviting that, you know, that kind of criticism, I think. Um, And I think it's fair for sure. Um, Anyway, Prom's not like an amazing movie or anything. I was just kind of joking (laughs) because I saw it and it's that horror. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I brought that up? That's my joke. (laughs) It was funny. Wasn't it good? (laughs) <laughs> jokes are always better when you have to like stop at the end and sort of like point out that that, that, was, was, that was the bit that we just did so i feel pretty good about it um yeah, just like a riff on the jeb bush thing just be like please laugh <laughs> please, please laugh please. um uh, no I so what is real... everybody oh sorry go ahead. no no you're fine uh, no, I was just going to ask who wants to go first. I I cannot go first because I am I'm I'm the apper. I'm the guy who did the intro. So between the two of you, if you want to do uh, rock paper scissors or uh, you know shoot dice, I don't. Ellie know. can go. I'll go after Ellie. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, I would consider this horror, but I feel like some people would be like, no, that's just a bunch of real life tragedies. Um, but there's a new TV show called Doctor Death. Starring Joshua Jackson and Alec Baldwin and Christian Slater. And I'm like four episodes in and it's based on a true story of this like doctor who just thinks he's amazing. But has like fucked up so many people's lives like cutting their spinal cords and their vocal cords and like causing infections and internal bleeding. And because hospitals in the States are the way they are, they just keep sending him to a different hospital. And it's just like. It's, like, mildly terrifying how, like, confident this doctor was and being like, no, all my surgeries were perfect. Meanwhile, so many people are so fucked up because of him. Ugh. That sounds... I remember seeing the trailer for that a few months ago and thinking that it looked pretty great, but I hadn't realized that it even it had even come out yet. Heck, yeah. I'm on, like, episode four now, and it's real good. And also, like... Alec Baldwin and Kristen Slater and my Canadian baby Joshua Jackson, like <laughs> see, see as this terrible doctor is so great. <laughs> He's a guy who uh who's kind of interesting. Like he is always putting in solid work, but it, it seems like he never took off in the way that he was kind of poised to back in the day, you know? Like it it seemed like in the early aughts, even as far back as like Dawson's Creek, he was kind of being groomed to be a leading man and you know, because from what Dawson's Creek, he got uh, was it the skulls opposite uh, Paul Walker, and you know there were there were like a handful of attempts. Yeah, it seemed like to sort of been legend, and um, yeah, like he's done some some stuff. He yeah, no, I'm, I'm not knocking him. I'm just it seemed like he was kind of being positioned, you know, as being kind of a leading man type who was going to make the jump from TV to, uh, to film. And it just, it never, it never quite happened, which always kind of bummed me out because I always thought he was really interesting. I kind of feel like that's the, the Creek curse because like James Vanderbilt didn't really take off afterwards either. He kind of couldn't not be Dawson anymore. And like Katie Holmes had some like good stuff, but she also didn't go very far. Michelle Williams took off heavily, though, so maybe I'm wrong. 
I was going to say, Michelle Williams has heard nothing of this Creek curse you speak of. Yeah. <laughs> but the other ones, the other ones who suffer. Hey, in James uh, Vanderbeek's uh, defense, the rules of attraction is pretty solid. He's fucking fantastic yeah, he's in that. Great that. That movie is very good and very yeah. under very under talked about. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's uh, Roger Avery, right? Wrote and directed it. Um, I believe so. Yeah. And it's my favorite Ellis novel. Like I know everybody is all about uh, Less Than Zero or American Psycho, but Rules of Attraction I think is hands down his best. I loved it, and the movie is just about as faithful an adaptation as you could get. Um, really is it's so good that one stars that too everyone's in that i really wish they had released um have you heard about glitterati Mm -mm. no okay so when avery was shooting uh let me look this up to make sure that i'm getting it right but when uh, roger avery was shooting the rules of attraction he cast this actor who was in the stallone movie driven he was in hostile part three i cannot think of his name kip Uh, Yes, Kip. Is it Pardue? I literally just rewatched Hostel Three like two days ago, and I wasn't going to bring it up because <laughs> so, so bad. <laughs> but now his face is like stuck in my brain. So yeah, he is one of the side characters in Rules of Attraction, and there is this borderline cocaine fueled montage that lasts for five minutes, but it's practically it's so says fast forward. And it's amazing. Like it's all about his travels through Europe. And it's like, what would you say? Almost like months in the man's life reduced down to five minutes, but it feels like you still see every moment in there somewhere. Um, Solid rating. And so that was, you know, the rules of attraction is a Brett Easton Ellis novel. Ellis also wrote a book called Glamorama, which featured that particular character as the star. I think Avery was going to try and make it into a film at some point, but he had cut together all of the footage that he shot with Pardue over the course of God knows how long and was able to cut a film out of it called Glitterati. And Mm. it was going to be released, but apparently the problem was is that they were sort of running and gunning the entire thing and they didn't get any releases from any of the people that, you know, they came into contact with because it wasn't really, you know, he was obviously the actor who was the focal point, but a lot of the interactions in what would have been that movie were with, you know, real people. It was all unscripted, but they were just, you know, moving Mm -hmm. like mad. And so as a result, the movie will never really be seen. Sadly, mm. so which is a damn wow. shame. But I no, Paul, I agree with you. I think the rules of attraction is fucking great, and it does bum me out that it was a Lionsgate movie, and so they had the opportunity to recreate the great scene in the book where uh, Sean Bateman, the Vanderbeek character, has a phone conversation with his older brother Patrick from American Psycho, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately, apparently, they did reach out to uh, uh, Christian Bale to cameo oh, wow. in the movie and he turned them down. Then they reached out to Brett Easton Ellis and they were like, look, why don't you play Patrick Bateman for the scene? And Ellis thought that it was just a terrible idea. So he refused. And then wow. they brought in uh Casper Van Dien to play Patrick Bateman in a brief yeah. scene for the movie. And then they cut it out. Yeah. As they should have. He's not Christian Bale. Yeah. It's a shame they couldn't get Bale to do it. That's, that's a shame. I could almost see, you know, if you think about where it was at that point, though, that was like 2001, 2002. I could see 
I don't see Bale being a snob necessarily. I mean, fuck's sake, he did Terminator Salvation. But I could almost see him being a perfectionist about the characters that he plays. And I wonder, you know, he was in superhuman shape when he did American Psycho. Like, I don't think he's ever been in that kind of shape since, not even when he did the Batman movies. So I wonder if he just refused simply because he couldn't meet the standards that he held for playing that character in the first place, you know? Mm. Maybe, but I could also see him being a snob. I mean, he was a kid in Kenneth Branagh's acting classes and stuff. Like, I feel like he's got that clout behind him. He, You know, he the one thing that always stuck with me, he did this interview right before Terminator Salvation came out. And he talked about getting the offer to be in Terminator, and he just wasn't interested in it. And Mick G, who was directing it at the time, like, yes. kept pursuing him. And apparently Bale had mentioned it to like one of I forget, like one of his friends or somebody he'd worked with. And their reaction was something like, oh, like they think you would do a Terminator movie like and he his reaction to it was like, well, why wouldn't I do? You know, there have been great Terminator movies. What am I a fucking snob? And so <laughs> that actually got him to consider being in the damn Terminator movie. And then yeah. unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> that was a mistake. Uh, yeah, to me, I, Christian Bale will always be Jack Kelly from Newsies. That's his greatest role. That's my favorite Christian Bale film by far. And I'm not I'm not being facetious. That is my favorite Christian Bale movie. But I, I also love Newsies. It's it's amazing. But how can a snob star in a Disney musical that Roger Ebert put in his I hated, 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 hated this movie book? Yeah, which I, which is one of the reasons I, I am not a huge fan of Roger Ebert, because how could he hate something so perfect? I love Roger Ebert. Yeah, but he was wrong about Newsies. Can we all agree to that? You know what? I don't think he likes music. I've never seen Newsies. He didn't like fun sometimes either. You know what else he hated? He hated Death to Smoochie, so there you go. Anyway, he's definitely wrong about that. Death to Smoochie. (laughs) Death to Smoochie is also a perfect movie. All right, anyway. It is it is ripe for rediscovery. I don't think have we even started on the first movie? I'm so sorry. Uh, I how do we let, let let's bring this back. Christian Bale, American Psycho, Rules of Attraction, James Vanderbeek, oh, Michelle James Williams, Creek Curse, Joshua Jackson, and that brings us back to Doctor Death. Boom! Did it. wow. Cool. I don't want to talk about that anymore. I'm tired now. We All are episodes. over it. Also, I tried to. I realized that, like, I'm pretty sure I had seen all of the Underworld movies, but I was like, you know what? Just in case, I should do a rewatch. I don't care for that series. Oh. It's just so... I don't know. Maybe because they over-stylized the filming and everything is so dark. Yeah. And everyone's flat. And they say lichen way too much. (laughs) They, They do love that word. Like, you know that somebody... Did you watch all of them? Did you watch the whole series? No, I got into the first one, and then I was like, I'd rather watch anything else. Oh, the first one is, like, a bit... I don't think the first one is that great of a movie. I don't think the series really has a pulse until the second one. The third one's the best, and then the fourth and fifth are kind of like fun junk. Oh, I'm going to stick with it now that I've dedicated myself to watching all the movies. But I'm just, I'm not going to have fun doing it. I'm just going to force myself, you know? Can I, make, can I make a suggestion, though? If you want to like Underworld, but you find that you don't, may I suggest as an alternative, and I think Paul's going to back me up on this, believe it or not, Dracula 2000 
Dracula to the Ascension and Dracula three, whatever the fuck that subtitle is for the third one is a surprisingly great horror action trilogy. I, out of those three, I've only seen Dracula 2000 and I'm obsessed with it. It's so great. I have it on VHS. (laughs) So same guy, same guy who uh, wrote and directed the first one actually did the direct the video sequels two and three. So it's, you know, obviously there's a lower budget, but it's still the same creatives. And, uh, Ah, there's so much. There's so much fun. Yeah, two two is great. I I was shocked at how good the second one is. They're, they're all good, but yeah, they they're definitely worth checking out. Hundred percent. Paul, how about you? What have you seen recently? Um, well, it's been a couple of weeks, so I've watched a good amount of stuff. Um, I'll try to run through things because there's a couple I'd like to hit, but I'll try to do it quickly. Um, I'll start with the your recommendation because I feel like I should start there. So I finally watched Gods and Monsters. Oh, did you love it? <clears throat> um, I loved it. Yes. I thought it was. Oh, yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, it, it definitely. Um, Man, I mean, it's not horror, but it's it's about James Whale. So, <laughs> I mean, there we go. Uh, no, it, it it was you know, I, I definitely liked how it. The title is very apt, right? Because it's kind of about the monsters we create, right? Metaphorically, or 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 literal life. And how we sort of reckon with those creations um, when the time comes. Uh, and and sort of our life, kind of our life story as a creation story in that way. So the way the movie kind of leverages um, the Bride of Frankenstein specifically as like a metaphor for James Whale's life, like him creating that movie and and its legacy and how it's sort of overshadowed himself in a way and then his persona has become wrapped up in what he's known for and then couple that with like how hollywood has cast him aside now that they know his true like emotional leanings and then him finding this kind of blank slate of a person in brandon frazier um who's this young you know attractive in shape guy that's kind of vacuous or at least appears to be so or allows people to think he is um, and kind of just pours truth into him because he'll accept it and nobody else really will. Um, and there's just this great relationship at the core of the movie that allows both characters like to be to, to kind of achieve catharsis, but at the same time be uncomfortable, like because you kind of have to be uncomfortable to reveal yourself to another person and you know and not not in a sexual way necessarily but in a just emotionally raw way um and kind of where it all goes and uh, you know how the metaphor of like the frankenstein stuff gets heavier and heavier until it's hard to discern between the two by the end um it was just really emotionally satisfying uh, I really liked the ending. I liked where it all went. Um, yeah, I, I was just very impressed with the whole thing. I thought it was a beautifully made film. Probably one of the best films of the 90s. <laughs> all hands down. Yeah. So, yeah, How great it. are the performances? Like, Fraser is amazing in it. Like, I, I honestly think it's one of the best performances he's given. And then Ian McKellen. It's 
is it just me? Is it weird to either of you that McKellen must have made Gods and Monsters and Apt Pupil almost back to back? And here we have two movies where he plays an older man who strikes up a relationship with a younger, impressionable man and sort of molds him into a weapon of sorts. You know, obviously in very, very different ways with very, very different outcomes. But I don't know. I just I, I thought that was interesting that he would have, uh, you know, he 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 would have sort of been working within that kind of oddly specific framework back to back back in what ninety eight I think. Uh, yeah, I <clears throat> that is interesting, and he definitely, I don't know, he he embodies that character so well, and he's so be- it's so believable that he'd be able to do it. Right. Like his his confidence and his charm and his charisma um, are so striking. Like even as a viewer, you're kind of caught off guard by him. You're like, you know what? I think I'd let this fucking guy paint me. I think I would. Like, (laughs) even though I may not feel comfortable with it, I just I think it's believable that he would be able to disarm you just with his his manner of speech. Right. His just the way he kind of holds a room um there's there's an inherent power there that has nothing to do with his physicality and everything to do with his intellect um and and the way he portrays that is is incredibly impressive in every movie he does but like in this movie because of the emotional core that's on display it it hit me i mean by the end of the movie i definitely was uh, uh there were a lot of tears fell (laughs) <laughs> oh god yeah oh. but it and was, it has uh, one of the greatest final shots i think any movie any biopic yeah. certainly has ever ever had yeah, uh, yeah. the final shot was phenomenal uh, it was <laughs> it was great and brendan fraser was great again it's a movie where you watch that and you're just like man brendan fraser i miss you i miss you so much like i you know him as a movie star i know he's coming back i know he's in he is tv and stuff but like i i'll be honest i miss the movie star brendan fraser that's what i want back i want brendan fraser in big hollywood movies um and it's yeah anyway hopefully someday i think it's on the written in the stars It, it is kind of heartening over the course of the last month to see uh you know the bulk of film twitter just put aside all of its many differences and band together to protect him you know mm-hmm. from people talking talking snark and shit and whatnot you know it's it's mm-hmm. been kind of nice for everyone to uh sort of circle the wagons and protect them it's we it's, can all agree that he's he's a treasure deserve that deserves to be protected yes but <laughs> he, he does and hollywood done him dirty like yeah yeah, yeah yeah that is very true which is something that you know i we don't uh, and that could be oh god this could be an entirely separate conversation but it is curious that you know, obviously when he spoke out about what happened to him, you mm. know, people were understandably sympathetic and, you know, everyone rightly said this isn't right, you know, and yet, you know, earlier this week, was it this week or not? Fuck this is Monday late last week, I guess I should say it was announced that the Expendables four is going into production without Terry Crews, specifically because Terry Crews spoke out about his own you know, assault and, uh, you know, the guy who runs millennium films, who produces the, uh, the expendables films, 
apparently was friends with the guy who assaulted Terry Crews and tried to talk Crews into not basically outing the incident. And now he's being punished by not being invited back to this major action franchise, which I think is fucking horseshit. And for whatever reason, not many people are talking about it. You know, it just it bums me out. Well, I didn't even hear about it until just now. And I'm like, so mad. Terry Crews is so great. He is, and why he didn't... Yeah, yeah that's infuriating. Just... Um, I didn't know that. I hadn't heard anything about that. So I think, the yeah, that's... I'm sad that that's not something that has been made more yeah. public or reported on. Or I mean, I guess it's on me for not, like, reading about it, but, like... No, not at all. I, I mean... Didn't, I didn't know that that was the case. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't seen any of the Expendable movies. <laughs> so I'm not really the core audience, but I will definitely <laughs> not watch the movie for, for that. It Out of... Uh, you know, solidarity for, for Mr. Cruz. All right. Paul, do you have another one you wanted to go through or, um, can I hit like a couple small independent ones really quick? Just, yeah, like, I'll, I don't... I'll just say, I only have two to talk about. I don't know how many more Allie has to talk about. So I will back away and you all talk to your heart's yeah. content and I will, uh, I'll hit my two whenever. Okay. Um, I'll just run through. So I watched harpoon, uh, from 2019. Did you see harpoon? Yeah, um, my friend's distribution company, Black Fawn, released it, and it's Brett Gelman is the narrator, which I think is the greatest thing ever because I, I oh love yeah it so much. The the narration is phenomenal, and I don't always like narration in a movie like this, but here it worked so well, it's so good. He's so funny, but he's so like to the point and like yes, yeah. It I was... need to look this up. Oh, Harpoon was. Harpoon was a delight of a of an indie horror film. Yeah. Um, it was wonderful. It's 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 a bottle movie. Um, it's uh, uh, three friends on a boat. Uh, the boat kind of through a series of events, they get sort of stranded at sea. Um, and while out there, uh, the truth, uh, multiple truths that have been hidden from one another, come out and. and- uh, and and it's sort of like what's what starts to what was previously keeping them alive, which is this friendship that they've been harboring since kids, but has long since eroded um, now starts to manifest on the surface um, to where, you know, each subsequent truth that's revealed, they're one step closer to potentially completely destroying one another physically and emotionally. Um, and it's very well done. It's oddly funny in a pitch black kind of way um it's it's you know very dark humor but incredibly compelling and for as simple as the movie is it keeps you very engaged like the tension is handled very well again considering it's just these three people um so yeah i i really recommend it harpoon where can i find this uh, I bought it on Vudu for like $5. Um, but I believe there is a, a Blu-ray from Dread Presents. Okay. All right. Good deal. Which I might pick up now, but I was, I was in the mood for like a water movie and I saw it cheap on Vudu. So I just bought it. That's a good water movie. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so Allie, you're, you're a fan of that one. I am. I'm a fan of like, 
water and boat based horror films, whether they be like a creature or just a psychological thing, or it's a ghost ship, that kind of crazy scenario. Yeah. I do really enjoy that. It's one of the few films that really brings up like all the weird, not boat lore, but like boat superstitions where like you shouldn't have a woman on the boat. Like you shouldn't have redheads on the boat. You shouldn't have this. If you see a seagull, like. (laughs) Yeah. I had, had some of the, cause sea fever did that recently too, where it brought up all the like weird superstitions. And I love when a movie does that. Yeah. Cause it kind of adds this weird, like supernatural stint to it, even if it's only like insinuated. Yeah. And Um, it's just, I grew up in a family of boaters, so I heard all the, like, boat superstitions growing up. So to see that in movies, I'm like, ha, this boat's fucked. Here's a redhead, and she's a woman. Guess who's yep. going to die? <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. I, I need to see this. Um, yeah. Allie, uh, Paul, do you have another? Or Allie, do you have another? Um, Can I do – gosh, I feel bad because I'm, like, hogging this. Can I do one, at least one more? There's one more I want to bring up. It's – uh. Uh, I watched Satan's Servant, uh, like the it? one Wait, that which one? was making the rounds. Um, so it's a brand new movie. It was made by like 18-year-olds during the pandemic. Uh, Fangoria did a write-up on it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the uh, – so Jack McDermott, who wrote and directed it with uh, Ethan Gomez-Zanley – uh, he, I started following him on Twitter after that and he reached out to me and, um, we chatted on DMS for a little bit and, uh, he had listened to a couple podcasts and things and, uh, he offered to, uh, let me watch the movie. So I, I checked out a screening link and, um, yeah, I was, I was really impressed. I mean, it's, it's the kind of like it's one of those DIY horror movies that when you watch it, it's just the most like inspiring movie in, in its ambition. Um, and it kind of reminds you what making horror movies is all about, you know, like it's, I mean, it's rough around the edges. Um, obviously the cast is made up of people he knows and other teenagers and stuff, but the cinematography was sleek as hell. I mean, surprisingly well shot. Um, the lighting was really good. I mean, it looked and and not to be said the wrong way, but it looked like a real movie. Um, and I've seen a lot of movies made by, you know, younger people, people in their teens and 20s. Hell, I made movies at that age. They did not look as good as this. Um, and they were not as well put together or as well conceived. Um, it's a smart, fun sort of uh, flip kind of flips the uh, satanic panic plotline on its head. And to be a hundred percent honest without calling other movies out, I like this better than some satanic panic movies that came out in recent years, like real movies from real studios. I thought this was a better film. So like I, I, and again, it's, it's again, definitely rough around the edges, but this movie was made for under $2,000 by a couple of teenagers who had nothing to do during the pandemic. So I think it's something that horror fans definitely should seek out. I think it's something that we should support. And I think we should definitely keep an eye on these filmmakers because um, I'm excited to see what they do in time. So, um, you know, I'll be sure, you know, I, I told him, I was like, if he ever does a Kickstarter or like another thing, just let me know about it. I'd love to support. But um, you can check out his movie on uh, Amazon Prime right now. And I would definitely recommend doing that. 
Archon. That's uh, that's Satan's Servant, and you said you can find it on Amazon Prime? Yes. Weirdly enough, I have Amazon Prime open right now. I'm going to go ahead and buy it to watch later. Things where I'm in Canada and I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it in Canada. <laughs> I am sorry. God, Canada's so stupid. <laughs> you all have health care, so, you know. I was going to say, there are some positives. But we and... don't have the good things. <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I, I don't want to hog the entire opening. No, no, no. Uh, I will say this. If uh, you said it was Jack McDermott and Ethan Gomez-Zonley, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if if they're burgeoning uh, Hammer fans at all, or if they have any interest, invite them onto the podcast. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll ask him. Uh, I, I we didn't get into you know his Hammer interest or whatnot. Um, I also Paul, have another Paul, potential. Come on. What, what are we paying you for? I know, I know. Well, well I'll ask him. And uh, he he just started college, so he's he's busy. He's very very busy. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, I do have a couple of potential guests coming up. I'll, okay, I'll I tell did, you about later. As we podcasted, I just rented Satan's Servant. It is eighty five minutes, and depending on how long we go tonight, I may very well. Yeah, it's a bree- it's a breezy watch, um, and it's fun. So I, I, I definitely think yeah, it'd be a good one, good late night movie. Just keep rubbing it in my face that I don't get to watch it. <laughs> I'll see if I can get a copy to you. I'll, I'll work on it. I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> All right. I um, <clears throat> I saw a couple of new release horror films, um, which I'm guessing I can't get too spoilery about. Uh, Paul, you might have seen one, but I know you haven't seen the other. <clears throat> Allie, Paul, have either of you seen yet Don't Breathe 2? No, I haven't. No, I know no. it's on VOD, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay. Allie, you said no? No. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep this non-spoilery then. It probably would have anyway, considering that it's still relatively new. But um, I'll ask, did either of you see the first film and what your yes. thoughts were? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I loved the first one. I thought it was a great sort of exercise and just the unbelievable tension at times. Uh, I thought I had a great villain in... Um, you know, it's lead whose name is Norman, I think. Is that what they called him? I TV leads. What's that? Don't hate on him because his name is Norman. No, Norman I wasn't. Leads. I, I, I love the name Norman for psychos. Um, no, I, I really enjoyed the original movie directed by Feta Alvarez. Um, I, it's marvelous. It introduced the character of the blind older man who uh, he's kind of like evil daredevil. You know, he he has some sort of crazy echolocation thing going on where he's able to do things that no blind person should be able to do. Isn't he um, like military or something? Like, I feel like they brought it up briefly in the first one. Yeah, and they go into it a little more in the second film where you find out he's a Navy SEAL. And it's like, okay, you know, he's he's obviously wicked smart. He's He was very well trained. He knows how to kill very well. But, like, there are still things, not just in the first movie, but even the second movie, where it's like, Come on. Like, really? He can do that? Okay, fine. Yeah. Blind people can do stuff too, all right? I mean, I needed him to get hit with a vat of radioactive chemicals to explain some of the shit that he's able to do in these movies. But whatever, you know, I'm willing to meet the films halfway. Um, Yeah, so I, I dug the hell out of the first movie, which positions his character as an absolute villain, albeit one with a... 
kind of a tra well, definitely a tragic backstory, but that tragic backstory pays off in a really twisted way in the first film. Um, and that first film was not without its controversies even before it came out. You know, Paul, you mentioned uh, Heather Wixon earlier. Uh, I believe when Don't Breathe came out, she and Daily Dead ran this uh, sort of Q&A, this public Q&A with Feta Alvarez leading up to it. And sort of without hint or preview, loads of people started attacking him during this Q&A for featuring a blind man as a villain because that was somehow ableist, um, but which I don't. powerhouse lead of that movie. He, I know he's I a mean, villain, but like he kicks so much ass and he does a good job. He does. I, I think it was the fact that, that he was a blind man was positioned as a villain, which, frankly, I I think is fucking nonsense. Like, are we really going? Is is Candyman ableist? You know, like, is that I just I fucking don't get it. But whatever. Um, I saw the new Candyman. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> oh, no. OK, then that's my second movie. We can talk about that. Okay. one. Um, but yeah, no, don't breathe. Probably the most. Um, the ickiest part of the first film. And I am going to get into spoilers here because the movie's like five years old. But. In Don't Breathe, we find out that the villain of the piece, who is the older man played by an incredible Stephen Lang, he had lost his beloved daughter to a drunk driver who um, who had hit and killed his daughter and then had gotten off because her parents were wealthy. And so he kidnapped her and artificially impregnated her with the intent to let her go once she had given birth to a child to replace his daughter. Um Real twisted. Um, that seems legit. Like, isn't that what a normal human would do? It, you know, it, well, it's funny in that it, it does. The thing that makes him even there is this weird sort of sympathetic note to him early on in the film when they present, you know, our, our heroes essentially in the opening of the first film are all thieves and they're breaking in on a blind guy. And one of the thieves is a complete piece of shit. So. You know, when he's pushing around a blind guy and it turns out the blind guy can take care of himself, I got to tell you, I'm kind of on the blind guy's side at that point. A little bit, you know? Yeah. And then there's the the thing that makes him even more sympathetic is also the thing that makes him despicable all at once, which is what I think is the first film's brilliant magic trick of a, of a reveal – uh, you know, you find out what drives his sort of, uh, you know, murderous intent within that house, but also it's unbearably icky what he does. Uh, and it's curious, you know, in the, and this will pay off later, but in the first film, he, he tells somebody, you know, the, the heroine in that film who is now going to take the place of the previous woman once she dies due to stray gunfire, he insists that he's not a rapist. That, you know, he's never forced himself on anyone, all the while holding that uh, the uh, turkey baster of doom. Um, yeah. Feels so, pretty rapey to me. Yeah. But what is interesting about the character, though, is that there is a, you know, I remember when the second film was, you know, uh, uh, first previewed, you know, all the trailers went out and of course, you know, Twitter had nothing better to do that day. It was a slow news day. So everybody lost their minds over that trailer, which seemed to position the older man as more of, if not a hero than an anti-hero. And so the quick boil it down to a sentence outrage, let's not even give this two seconds worth of thought is how dare they make a rapist a hero for the second film? 
which I mean, that's Twitter in a nutshell, right? You only have 280 characters and, you know, you got to get that rage out some way. Um, <laughs> when in fact, I mean, I think it makes complete emotional sense to look at the original movie and see what drove that guy and what he did to him being positioned in the second film as somebody who is now raising a young girl to take care of herself and be a survivalist, much like him. You know, when she gets kidnapped, he goes to basically save the day. Now, it's still icky, but we're still dealing with a horror film, you know, and but it does position him as being an antihero. And so, you know, it, it is strange, but at the same time, it makes all the sense in the world. Like the same thing that drives him in the first film when he's a villain is the same thing that drives him in the second film when he's more of an antihero, you know. And it's just weird to me that nobody was willing to give the movie a chance, it seemed, early on because of that. Uh, I don't know. You know, if you don't want to watch the movie, don't watch the movie. But it's the tone that everyone seems to take on Twitter isn't so much this movie isn't for me. It's, well, I don't know how anyone could want to watch a movie starring Rapist to see. You know what I mean? What like, about what? So what do those same people say about Devil's Rejects? Exactly. Because those guys are also rapists, and they're also way worse than that. They cut people's faces off. Thank you. Um, No, They're the heroes of that movie. Not a peep, Paul. Not a damn peep is what they say. I don't know. Um, I just think, like, horror, you're going to have to accept the fact that some of the characters you're watching, like, aren't good people. And that was the whole point of Don't Breathe. Like, Don't Breathe was feeding... To me, what that movie was, was Alvarez was kind of like, hey, I wonder if... I can still create tension if you hate everybody. If everybody <laughs> sucks. Because everybody in that movie fucking sucks. They're all no. awful. Nobody's good. No, so it's like, well, can you still give a shit about people? Like, can you still care in an intense situation? And the, the answer is, yeah, you can. Because when you when you make a, a tense scene well, it's just going to be tense, regardless of who's mm-hmm. occupying the frame. So, I mean, to me, this is just an extension of what the first movie already did. So the second film, without getting into spoilers, I will say, I honestly didn't expect it to be much beyond maybe a step up from like a direct-to-video cash-in on the first film that somehow scored a theatrical release. You know, I watched the trailer. It looked pretty cool, but it felt like a cash-in, right? Like Mm -hmm. just a kind of a crass. Gang, I fucking loved it. It is fantastic. Uh, Fede Alvarez is not directing this time around. I believe it's the co-writer and co-creator of the series. Uh, and apologies if I uh, massacre his name, but I believe it's Roto Saigas. Um He directs the living hell out of the film in such a way that it feels of a piece with the original movie, but also has stylistic flourishes all its own. It tells a completely different story. Um, you know, that again does position Stephen Lang's character now as a, you know, and this is something that bums me out too, where Fede Alvarez was trying to assure people on Twitter after the, uh, the dust up, you know, the, the outrage, he was like, no, 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 he's, he's totally still a villain. He's fuck. No, he's not like, he is 100% the movie's hero. Like he's a hero by virtue of the fact that he's a guy trying to save an innocent child's life. But he's a hero all the same. He just is. Like, and if that makes people feel icky, then they should give the movie a wide berth. But for what it is, I mean, there is very little setup. And weirdly enough, it doesn't even need it. You have about 10 minutes to get to know the characters. You get 10 minutes to get to know the world. And then it becomes one long, protracted cat and mouse game. And it's so incredibly well made. And it's so, like, just 
ratchets up the tension bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. The basic setup of the movie, for anyone who hasn't seen the trailer, um, it's eight years after the events of the last film. Norman is basically living in, you know, a different house this time, although he's still in Detroit. Um, and he is taking care of his granddaughter. Or is no, I'm sorry, he raises her as his daughter, but I don't know. It gets a little dodgy exactly what his relationship is meant to be uh, to her. But nevertheless, he's raising her to be kind of a survivalist, much like him. Uh, you know, he's teaching her how to survive. He's uh, homeschooling her. She's incredibly smart, but she wants a life outside of like that house and all the training. And so she kind of yearns to be a part of, you know, the bigger world outside. And unfortunately, that world does present itself to them in a kind of surprising way when a group of men break into their house with the sole intent to kidnap her. Now, I wouldn't dare reveal why they do that, but I will say it's like much like the first film, Paul, that you pointed out, there are no good people in the first film. Other than the little girl, there are really no good people in the second film either. It's all shades of bad, but there are like what's amazing about it is that even the bad people you know, much like Norman and much like the men who kidnapped the little girl, as twisted and fucked up as their reasoning is for kidnapping her, it's rooted in, like, genuine emotion. Like, there, there's a believable, you know, palpable reason that they're doing what they're doing that's rooted, weirdly enough, in love. Uh, and again, I, I don't want to get too far into it because I don't want to spoil stuff, but nevertheless, it's just – it's. Even though the movie is one long cat and mouse game, within that they're able to just do these marvelous little brushstrokes of character to add dimension to all of the characters, not just our hero. Um, and I just I love it. I adore it. It's it's. Uh, I never would have expected that they would have taken this route with a sequel. You know, one imagines they could have just uh, done a riff on the events of the first film. You know, rinse and repeat, and you know it would have been enough for them to make a bit of money and you know run the franchise into the ground and move on. Instead, like. I just love that the first film with that guy, he's kind of like evil Zatoichi. And then in the second film, it's more like, okay, maybe not so bad Lone Wolf and Cub. You know what I mean? Um, mm. And he's 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 definitely still a monster in it, but he's a monster who – and again, this is why I think the writing is so good in the film. He is somebody in the first film that will kill at the drop of a hat to protect his secret in the basement. They never have a big, long expository sequence telling you how he softened over the years in the second one. But you just know instinctively by the way he reacts to the situation that raising this little girl has kind of made him a better person. When the threat is presented to him, he has all sorts of you know, opportunities to kill people, and he doesn't. Like, he, he tries to disarm them. He tries to put them down. He tries to knock them unconscious. He tries to render them you know, uh, no longer a threat, but it takes a lot to get him to the point where he actually does kill again. And you get the sense that it's because he's doing his damnedest to be a better human being. And I, I kind of love that. I love that, you know, if the first film he's a monster, the second film he's still a monster, but, you know, in the first film he was a monster who was looking for love in a weird way. You know, he wanted his daughter back. And what I love about the second film is it asks, well, what does a monster look like if they actually get what they want? You know, he gets a daughter, Essentially, you know, he has that love in his life. So all of a sudden it kind of renders the monster inert until, uh, you know, it gets reawakened. Uh, I tried to explain it to a friend of mine just briefly uh, what he could expect from it just tonally. And I was like, you know what it is? It's blind man on fire. Like that's mm -hmm. totally what the film is. And uh, 
I don't know. Thumbs up for me. I, I adored it. I've seen it twice. I watched it once in the theater, and then it's telling you how much I liked it. I watched it on the big screen, and then five days later, I dropped 20 bucks to rent it and watch it again. Hmm. All right, yeah. That felt like a ramble, but... <laughs> you know what? And I'll just say one last thing. I, I was joking when I said Blind Man on Fire, but <laughs> Man on Fire is great, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's yeah. amazing. Okay, going back to... People on Twitter got like thirty percent on fucking Rotten Tomatoes though. That's it's insane. Oh, it is a it is a crime against nature. It's what has been done to Tony Scott's films on Rotten Tomatoes? And I wonder all the people who had an issue with the possibility that Stephen Lang's character in Don't Breathe Two was going to be the hero. Like when they watch a movie like Man on Fire and hopefully see it for the masterpiece that it is and loves it, you know, unconditionally. Um, what does that viewer? Th- think of a scene where say Denzel Washington uh, as John Creasy is talking to his old war buddy played by Christopher Walken and he asks him and I'm probably paraphrasing I'm gonna fuck up the quote but he says something like do you think God will ever forgive us for what we've done to which Walken without missing a beat says no no what do viewers think that means do they think that they were just soldiers who killed bad guys or do they realize that these guys probably did some truly heinous, awful shit? Yeah. Well, people are complicated. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, well, no, the the answer is, Jinx, they don't think about it at all. Exactly. That scene exactly. passes and they just move on to the next scene. Like, they yes. don't overanalyze it because it's it's not overt, it, you know. Whereas when, when there's something that can be overt and distilled in an easy to sort of pick apart way, that's when they'll jump on it. <laughs> yep. You nailed it. Uh, you know, and the last thing I'll say about it is that they missed the boat in marketing the film. Um, you know, back in the day when Saw 2 came out, they did Saw with like the two severed fingers for Saw 2. You know, I'm just saying they could have done Don't Breathe with like two turkey basters, but they didn't because they were cowards. Gross. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Forgive me. <clears throat> anyway, next. Anyone? Anyone? Got Anyone? Got another? Allie, you said you saw Candyman. Yeah, I thought, yeah, Candyman. I did see Candyman. I didn't I see it. Loved it. Like it. It was. It was the only. Okay. My biggest issue with the film is stylistically. I love that they told all the flashbacks um, as like those paper shadow puppets. I'm totally fine with that. However, when you do that, you don't give a real human face to any of your background, like to any of your backstories. So to then, spoiler alert, bring back a certain someone in the last 30 seconds of the film, it makes no fucking sense. Either have him in the film more or don't have him in the film at all. Spoiler. Um, It's not because everyone knows he's in it unless you're not a horror person. Okay, non-horror people don't listen (laughs) I'll have you know that we have one non-horror listener out there. He just, uh, he likes all of her personalities. His name's Jim, and he lives in Utah. Oh, so there hi, we go. Uh, hi, Jim. Um, <laughs> it, Allie, I, you know what's crazy, and it's still new, and it's not available on VOD, and Paul, I know you haven't seen it. I'm not going to delve into, like, really thick spoilers. I will say that I really like the movie. I'll also say that I have said any number of times over the course of the last year and a half that the movie was easily my most anticipated film of 2020, and then eventually 2021. And being honest, did it meet my expectations? No. Is that unfair 
to the movie, probably because my expectations were sky high and I'm a huge fan of that character and franchise part three aside. Um, it's not without its problems. And I, I find that, you know, I think, I think Nia DaCosta shot the hell out of it. It is a beautiful movie. It's a gorgeous film. Like um, every and in a non showy way. Oh, sorry, Alec, would you yeah. agree? Like, yes, I agree. So, and, and please, and Ali, tell me more. Like, what did you think, like, overall? Like, just style aside, like, how did the story strike you? I really liked it. Like, I thought, I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's such a woke movie. It's like, <laughs> okay, it's a woke movie. But also, aren't you still pissed that this stuff is still kind of happening? And by kind, it, I mean aggressively. Anyone who would decry a movie being woke has no issue with those things happening in real life. Yeah. And I just, I like the unique storytelling of it. There are some issues closer to the end that, like, we can talk about after the podcast because they're hard spoiler alerts that I had some, like, here and there issues with. But, like, overall, I thought it was great. I thought everyone delivered a good performance. The lead guy, um, whose name I can't think of, and I'm going to screw it up if I even try. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, I believe. Yeah, he was great. And also, uh, does was Vanessa Williams, does she not age? Uh, not a bit. Not a day. Uh, like, she's so beautiful. She That movie was 29 years ago, and she looks exactly the same. She sounds exactly the same. Like, it, it was astonishing. It's like... She literally walked off the set of the first movie to the point where it was almost not believable that yeah. she was the lead character's mother. Yeah, because you think like, oh no, that girl's way too young. You're like, hmm, she ain't though. Like, she was in the original. <laughs> no, I um the I think Nia DaCosta directed the hell out of it. I love the score. The score is doing something really interesting where it's um obviously it references the main theme from uh you know, that Philip Glass did for the Bernard Rose movie back in 92, but it does this thing where the bulk of it, it evokes the feeling of Philip Glass's work, but whereas the Glass score has this kind of iciness to it, like this this coldness to it, you know, it, it, there is something that's warmer about the music in the, you know, in this new film, uh, but it's no less creepy. And I'll agree with you, I think, uh, yeah, Abdul between the second is marvelous in the lead role, but the problem is that I think he's so damn likable as the character that at least on the first watch, uh, and I've seen it twice now, uh, at least on the first watch, it didn't occur to me that the main reason I liked him is because he's so likable a performer and it's not really down to the character having much depth. Which I think is a problem with the bulk of the characters in the movie. I, I think we're yeah. meant to care about all these characters. And to some extent we do because, yeah, you know, they all seem like very likable people, but they're also kind of like very thinly drawn. Even the moments that feel like they're going to give us some depth, like, you know, with uh, Tano Paris's character, uh, Brianna, who is kind of like, I mean, at a certain point she becomes the de facto lead of the film, which I think is kind of great. Um She's given like what could be a tragic backstory, but the movie devotes all of 20 seconds to it and then it's never brought up again. And it's like, well, what's the point? You know, um, stuff like that, I think. 
Yeah, we didn't see any character long enough to really get anything more than just surface level drama off of them. Yeah, and you know, for all the people like, you know, complaining about its wokeness or whatever, and you know, obviously there are you know, those same elements are elements that other, you know, critics who, who, who I pay more attention to, uh, you know, are championing about the movie. I think the movie nails all of that stuff. You know, it has some really interesting stuff to say about gentrification. It has some really interesting stuff to say about how, you know, um, black artists are treated as commodities by, you know, kind of eh, vultures, as it were, preying upon them. And it's not... And it's not always down to, well, that's uh, kind of a spoiler, but I will say that there is a white art dealer who is obviously a vulture. I think he's called a hyena at one point, uh, which is yeah. true. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a complete bastard and he's obviously just preying upon Anthony and his talent, you know? Uh, and then there's the, the sort of world as a whole that shines a light on Anthony's work and is only interested in him now because he has a connection to, you know, a violent event, we'll say, that happens, you know, in the first third of the film. And then – but what's interesting is is that later on in the film, there is the sort of opposite of that character. You know, whereas he was a white male and a complete asshole, like later on, there is a black woman who is positioned to give our other lead, Brianna, you know, the job of her dreams – and then, and this is only a slight spoiler. And then ultimately, it's revealed that the only reason that that character is interested in Brianna in the first place is because she is dating the lead guy who is now a figure of interest. And it's like, okay, so it goes beyond just, you know, white and black at this point. It's all down to like just, you know, any sort of business wanting to capitalize on human beings, you know, uh, and squeeze them dry. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought the movie really nailed all of that stuff. Um, you know, I, obviously the stuff that's been hinted at in the trailers with the cops, um, I think is really hard hitting. I also think it's kind of too little too late in the movie. You know, that's something that I wish had been seeded throughout a little more. And instead it just kind of drops in the last third of the film, uh, which that's kind of my main issue with the movie is that it feels underwritten. Like it doesn't. For all of the interesting stuff that it adds to the mythology, it doesn't flesh it out. It doesn't explain it. You know, it's not merely a matter of leaving it mysterious. It just feels kind of undercooked. And the same thing with the characters, you know, the the same thing with how it connects to the previous, you know, films. It just, it almost feels like a first draft of a movie, you know, and that first draft is great, but I feel like it could have been a masterpiece and it wasn't. Yeah, no, I agree. Like it's, it feels like they had spent a little bit more time developing the story a bit more. It could have been a lot better. Um, what was the point I was going to make? Oh, I don't know. Okay, this might be a spoiler alert, but... Paul, plug your ears. Yeah, everyone out there who hasn't seen okay. it, plug your ears. Um, <laughs> the whole reason the guy starts researching that area of, of town of Chicago uh, is because the brother of his girlfriend like tells them the scary story about like Candyman and all the stuff that went down there but then later we're supposed to believe that he's kind of always known about it and that's why he's doing this whole thing and it just felt very if that whole part of it felt forced and I yeah. get that his mom was trying to be like no we definitely don't come from that shady area we come from this one you're not whoever you are 
Yeah, it, that felt a little... Yeah. I agree. And plus, it was a little too... There is a throwaway line that uh, Coleman Domingo's character, Burke, who, by the way, I think is in the movies, you know, as great as uh, Yagdul Matinas in the movie and as great as uh, Tana Paris is in the movie, like, I think Coleman oh. Domingo is like the movie's MVP. Like, he does. The comic relief of that whole thing. He was so good. Yeah. And, well, not only that, but, like, he he's all of the exposition that he has to get through and make it feel like organic. And like, you know, there's that great scene where he goes through, uh, you know, all of the various candy men and what they mean and like just the emotion in his performance. Um, I do think the movie lets him down a little bit in the final third in a number of different ways, but thinking of somebody else, that is my bad. I got their name screwed up. Yes, I do agree in the final third, that character for no reason switches. Yeah, it's but he's he's marvelous, I think. But, you know, he has this quick throwaway line about like, uh, you know, how Anthony, who's the lead character, was maybe always meant to return there. And it's like, eh, that's kind of cheap. You know, it's it's that's, that's a cop out. <laughs> and the same thing, too. You were mentioning about the uh, the cardboard cutout. Well, like the the shadow puppets. There was that trailer that came out last summer that was just made up of all of that. And it's beautiful work. Like, it's, it's gorgeous. Work. It's very stunning. It's very stylish. It works. It's just, if you're not going to show who these people are in a flashback, it's hard for me to be like, oh, that's who that guy is. Like, I, think, I wonder if the problem isn't the fact that, well, I, I agree with you. And that's something I wanted out of the movie. But somebody made a very good point. There was a critic who said that it was a very smart decision to only show those events by way of like the shadow puppets, because why subject us to just seeing more black trauma? Yeah. And, I, and it's like, well, I, I get I that agree with that. But at the same time, the problem, I think, is that when you see that trailer from last summer, that includes multiple people. Like, it's Daniel Robitaille, the original Candyman, but it's also the young boy who was accused by a young white girl. And then, you know, even though he was 14, he was sentenced to the electric chair. There is the man who moved into a white neighborhood and was drugged to death, you know, uh, by a pickup truck. There was the uh, the Sherman uh, character who was actually, weirdly enough, the main Candyman of the film, who actually gave out candy to kids in Cabrini Green and then was killed by police when they suspected that he was harming children, but he actually wasn't. The only stories we see in the film itself are Daniel Robitaille's and Sherman's. They don't even show us the other two origin stories that we saw in a trailer a year ago. So yeah. there's a pretty major climactic moment where all of these names are being mentioned, you know, and it's like, well, wait, I only know two of those people. And then there's, yeah, there's a thing with like yeah. reflections later on where it's like, okay, this is a big moment where there are figures being revealed. And it's like, okay, I have no connection to the bulk of these people, you know, like, I don't really know who they are. Like why it just, the movie felt like, and what kills me is like, they've had a year and a half to yeah, look at that film. Fix these problems. Uh, yeah. I mean, somebody had to have looked at it and thought like, you know, <laughs> There, there are issues, there are plot holes, like, not necessarily plot holes, but there are things that need work that just kind of went, I think, unattended, which is, again, a damn shame. Like, I think the movie, and to any listener out there, if you, it, it sounds like I'm bashing the movie. No, it's good. Go and see it. It's very, very, very good. It is. If it sounds like I'm being too nitpicky, 
understand I'm only doing it simply because I think the movie was so close to being a masterpiece and it just misses on a number of levels that I think probably could have been easily enough accounted for. Now, who am I to say, like, what the fuck do I know? You know, maybe, you know, they made the best movie they could under whatever circumstances they had going into it. But it just kind of bums me out that it got so close to being something truly great. And instead it winds up being, um, you know, my third favorite Candyman. <clears throat> yeah. Hashtag, hashtag farewell to the flesh forever. <clears throat> <laughs> I love that movie. It's a great movie. It Tony is. Todd's amazing in it because Tony Todd is amazing and deserves all the screen time in the world as it's any so character. Oh, like spoiler alert. That's why I was so bummed at about the end. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't even mean anything. That's it means okay. Nothing. Like, <sighs> it's so annoying. Like, Unless you have like a history with the Candyman film, you're not gonna watch it and be like, "Oh, I know exactly who that guy is." Like, there, there is the sense that you're absolutely right. Like, there is the idea that this was almost gonna be like Halloween 2018, where it was gonna serve as a reboot. It's like, you know what? You only need to be vaguely familiar with what has come before, and we're gonna tell a brand new movie. You know, we're gonna tell a brand new story with this movie that's gonna be a great jumping on point for new viewers. And then you actually watch the movie and it's like, no, it's a sequel, and you really need to have seen the first movie to understand what the fuck is going on sometimes. Yeah, and that was oh it was such a bummer in the end. But I was like either use Tony Todd a little bit more or don't use him at all because it makes no sense. There was I I remind me after we get off the, the mic, I have something to tell you all about the movie that I can't say on air. So anyway, um, but yeah, that was, that was Candyman. It is absolutely worth watching. I imagine it's going to be in VOD soon. Check it out that way. If you're more comfortable doing that than going to your local theater. But I will say that the movie, even though it did disappoint me a bit, is still absolutely worth watching. And there are some great, I will say this, when I watched the movie the first time, I was a little bit disappointed with it. Uh, there's a great writer that I follow on Twitter. His name is Richard Newby, and he wrote up this uh, thing for The Hollywood Reporter, I believe. Um, and it kind of made me appreciate the movie more than I did when I saw it the first time around. And then when I saw it the second time, I sort of kept in mind some of the points that he made about it. And it really did make me appreciate the film more. So when you see the movie, definitely look up Richard Newby's Hollywood Reporter piece on Candyman. I think, uh, I think it'll sort of deepen your appreciation for the film. I really do. I think that's it. Is that, are we, are we good? Are we done? Yeah. Anybody, I'm, anybody I'm good. Yeah. I, I was just listening. Cause well, I haven't seen to have your man. fingers in your ears, man. Yeah. I heard a lot of stuff <laughs> about this movie. <laughs> I will say this. It's cool. If it, if it sounds like any of it was spoilery, Paul, honestly, it really wasn't. Um, it's fine. Cause there are, it. it's what happens when you don't go to theaters. It's my own fault. I need to go to theaters again. I know. I'm thinking I might go see Halloween, the new Halloween. That might be my return. Nice. That would be a good one. That's yeah, that's a good one. What? Well, I, I love Halloween, and I have to see the new one. So, but it's I don't have a choice. <laughs> They're gonna do VOD. If they do VOD, then I'll do that. But if it's if theater only is my only choice, then that might be the way I go. Well, you know what the problem is? They're universal, which means I think they've struck a deal where there's now a 17-day window. And if it opens on the 15th, you know what that means? If you wait on VOD, you're going to be watching the brand new Halloween film in November. Oh, yeah, that won't work. (laughs) (laughs) That that simply won't fly. 
That will not do. Allie, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about before we dive in? Um, not really. I started watching the new season of American Horror Story. That's about it. Okay. I have, uh... All right. I still need to get around to watching, uh, the rest of, uh, season three. <clears throat> so you're, like, mad far behind. We're on season ten now? Are we really? Okay, I didn't need to know that. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I, I gave up after Freak Show. That was the end Freak for me. Freak Show was not a good season. I was I, like, I think I'm good. <laughs> that's, that's when I always end up skipping. I'm like, we don't need to revisit this very offensive season. It's fine. It's fine. I will say that the Coming. one that really got me back was Roanoke, just because hearing about it in passing, it sounded fascinating, but I never got around to it. My whole thing is that I feel... Like, the beginning of the season of every season of American Horror Story is really good, and it develops this really great story. And then Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk and his writers, they all just get lazy after that, and then the stories just kind of fall apart. Yeah. It, every season feels like they're making it up as they go along. It truly does. Like, it feels like, like they, they initial story, and then they were like, okay, yep. that took up four episodes. What do we do until 12? <laughs> yeah, and they just write until it's over and you're just like what what is happening none, none of this makes any sense yeah like i don't know where you're going with this and like this is doing the exact same thing where i'm like okay i'm intrigued by everything that's happening so far but where's the turning point we're coming into episode four how much longer is this going to be good for i'm still gonna watch the whole season though so like <laughs> get yeah, my I, I get it you have to I will say to, to their commit. credit uh american crime story has been pretty amazing. Like the people versus OJ Simpson is, uh, those are based on real stories that have a real somewhat conclusion. That's probably it. They, they know what they're writing toward. Yeah. Yeah. uh, The assassination of Gianni Versace was amazing. And the other one, uh, with Betty, the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford story. That one was good. I haven't seen that one yet. Um, well, if you uh, like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, it's, I mean, I watch, yeah, I haven't watched any of those, but I'm, I also don't watch a lot of TV, so I don't know. Maybe I'll, there was I'll, the, I'll check it out. Maybe. There was a Netflix series, too, that Samara Weaving was in. Um, oh, Hollywood. Hollywood, which I can't believe I haven't seen it because Samara Weaving was in it. But Oh, she's uh, so great. I love her. Same, same. Like, Wait, Hallie? Oh, my God, it occurs to me. You, you, you came to the podcast after the fact, so now I have to backtrack and ask you just very quickly. Thumbs up, thumbs down. The Babysitter and the Babysitter Killer Queen. Thoughts? Oh, I thought they were... I'm sorry. They were both thumbs downs for me. Okay. Well, we, we had fun having you on. <laughs> uh, you know, everything that has a beginning has an oh, end. Man, that's, you know, it's, that's intense. It's a shame, really. Um, it's just felt too, I don't know how to say it. Like, It just felt like they were trying too hard. For the entire movie and it wasn't as fun as I wanted it to be because it just felt like you know this adult male was really trying to like really show that he knows young kids and it just felt yeah. Anakin you're breaking my heart um, sorry just could you lie to me instead just tell me <laughs> thought they were I can, I can tell you that Samara Weaving is so great I loved her in Ready or Not I'm yes. Like, All right. We perfect. we can at least meet there. <laughs> Common ground. Yeah. All right. Shall we talk some uh, Tomb Mummy blood? I here think we probably should. Yeah, it's been like two hours. 
guys. A real, we're, we are 20 seconds shy of an hour and 15 minutes. At this point, that's us doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of all right. I'm kind of proud of us. Everyone out there, if you are listening and actually trying to do this as a commentary with us, we know you're not, but you know, let's fuck. We're 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 gonna pretend. We need you to go ahead and queue up the movie of choice. Again, that's going to be Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, the 1971 British horror film that Hammer put out, directed by Seth Holt and Michael Carreras, and that's a story in and of itself. Now, depending on how you're watching this, you're going to want to queue it up to the very first frame of the film proper, whether that be the Anchor Bay DVD, the eventual Scream Factory Blu-ray, or if you're going to be like me, I actually have it on Amazon Prime right now, which means I need to skip past that very pretty but very pointless Studio Canal logo at the very beginning. Wow, I don't have any of those intros. Mine just opened on a Hammer production. Oh, you're lucky. Good for you. That's awesome. That's the way it should open. Uh, Paul, how about you? Are you doing uh, Scream Factory or Scream? Uh, well, Scream Factory, and then um, I have the Studio Canal because obviously Scream often uses the Studio Canal transfer. Uh, it, is, it is hypnotic. And then I'm at the EMI Film Productions Limited logo. Yes. So let's do that. Let's start on black right before EMI. We're going to do a countdown, and everyone out there in listener land, we're going to press play at the same time. Tell me when it says a hammer production on your guys' screen, because I don't have any of those intros. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Allie, I'm going to tell you to press play. You specifically, I'll say, Allie, play. Uh, So don't don't pay attention to the next 10 seconds. Ready, everyone Uh, out there? We're the best when it comes to queuing up movies. That's the best part of this podcast. It's... it's, uh, I'd like to think that it charms our listeners rather than frustrates them. Who knows? Who can say? All right, everyone, here in five, four, three, not you, Allie, two, one, and play. EMI Film Productions Limited. Yep. All right, get ready, Allie, and wait for it. Play, Allie. Okay, so we have this very Star Wars-esque opening long before Star Wars was a thing. Was it long before or was it? Oh like- my god, Allie, mute, 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 Allie. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so loud. Well, no, it has this, this, a- this astral feeling, right? Like it like this this wide in scope universal kind of feeling to it, uh, which I which I like quite a bit. Immediately instills cosmic dread, and then you show me that Andrew Keir is going to be the lead. And I gotta tell you, deep down, I'm kind of hoping this is going to be a Quatermass film. I know better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what if? Well, Keir, Keir wasn't even supposed to be here today. Yeah, he wasn't <laughs> yeah. supposed to work today. Uh, you know, okay, so that is a comic lead-in to what is a sad story, Paul. How are you going to shift those gears? Well, you know, this was a. Uh, Many people considered this a cursed production because a whole bunch of people died during during the filming of it, um, including the director, including the director. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could do we want to just do that now? Just go into that let's, whole. Yeah, production let's go ahead and knock thing. out the Everybody cursed out. production right. aspect for anyone out there who doesn't know. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb uh, is considered to be. Yeah, you're right. If not a cursed film, then a cursed production, surely. And uh yeah. So, Paul, why don't you, I'm sure you've done research on it. Allie, you go ahead and uh, help out, too. Like, what do you all know about this production? How was it cursed and why? So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll skip past because this movie's really interesting in a lot of ways. Like how it came about is really interesting, but the curse production of it actually didn't didn't really come into play until production began. Um, so the initial tragedy was within the first couple of days of production. So Peter Cushing was cast uh, in the sort of uh, Julian Fuchs role, the Andrew Keir role, um, which makes me wonder if they ever courted Christopher Lee for Corbeck, by the way, because how great would that have been? Um, but Damn, that would have been perfect. Yeah, that would have been so good. Uh, anyway, um, so his wife was very ill. His wife, Helen, was very ill. And so they were already aware that he was going to have to sort of be able to leave early on certain days so he can tend to her. So they got through like a day of shooting with him. Um, and then he called uh, and that night and he basically was told that his wife more than likely wouldn't live through the evening. Um, so he called in tears and basically said, uh, you know, I need to be released from the production. So, um, you know, so they basically pieced together a day of shooting that didn't require Cushing while they were frantically trying to find a replacement. Um, and Carreras ended up reaching out to Andrew Keir um, and Keir, being the gentleman and scholar that he was, was basically like upon hearing why they were calling him too, was like, uh, I can be there in 12 hours, which would have put it in the middle of the night. He's like, leave the script outside the gate. I'll grab it, learn the lines and show up the next day. Like. And again, this to me, it speaks to the familial nature of Hammer like how hard they were willing to work for each other to support each other. Um, and, and that's kind of, so very hodgepodge Kier was sort of called in, came in uh, to take over for Cushing. So that removed Cushing from the production in a role that was really written specifically for him. Um, and then positioned Kier in there. Um, so that was sort of the first tragedy that struck um, and then, you know, a one of the stage crew died in a motorcycle accident halfway through production, which was sort of unrelated to it. Um, but then the sort of bigger uh, thing that happened that was more directly tied to the to the shoot was uh, so director Seth Holt, um, who admittedly had pre-existing health concerns before signing on to the film. And I mean, I don't want to speak out of school in a way, but like he was kind of a known alcoholic and had a lot of issues with his alcoholism and health issues that were tied to that. Um, and in the final week of their six week shoot, he started having hiccups, like very strong, distracting hiccups. Um, and everyone sort of thought nothing of it, ignored it. And one night he was having a dinner party at his home with his wife. Um, and after the party, he started having trouble breathing. And then his heart just basically gave out and he fell down dead. Um, Did and... he not? I'm so sorry. I um, I thought I'd read and it would be funny if there are like apocryphal stories surrounding like how he passed away. I thought he had died on set. Like He, he did not into... die on set. Oh, I read 
that he died on set and then no, that's a rumor to Aubrey Morris's arms. He didn't die on set. That that's a that's a very common mistruth um, that has been spread around. But when you talk to like in all the um, commentaries and interviews and like interviews that the producers have given and stuff like that, it he he passed out on set at one point. But he did not die on set. He died. He died at home after a dinner party uh, the night he had passed out on set. Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah, like a lot of rumors have come up around that. But the crazy part about it was the way Seth Holt directed was he did not. He liked to work without an editor. So he assembled the footage as he shot it. And he didn't like to map out what he was going to do. He just had it all in his head. I also read that too. (laughs) So when Carreras had to come in and take over, there was like no roadmap to what had and had not been shot. So What's crazy is is that Holt himself was a very accomplished editor, right? Like, do you think he was, uh, he was pulling a Hitchcock on a hammer where he was only shooting what he knew he would need so that they couldn't recut it around him? Well, that was that. Yeah. (laughs) which he, he, I mean, he, he nailed it apparently. Because but, that's but they exactly had to happened. in like a in like a forty eight hour period, they had to sift through weeks of rushes yeah. to figure out what was there and what wasn't there and come up with a plan because they couldn't. I mean, this was they Hamburg had no additional funds. They were it, they were living paycheck to paycheck at this point. Um, so this movie, put it this way, if they didn't finish it in their allotted time, the movie wasn't going to get finished. What they had when it was over is what they were going to have. So they, they had to, uh, to do some, some crazy shit. So it was, suffice it to say, it was a tumultuous production and it wasn't a very fun one for the, for the cast or the crew. Um, and there was a, an ever intensifying dourness (laughs) that was pervading the set as the shoot went along. There is, uh, you could hear the book just closing on my finger as I brought it up. Um, in the Hammer story, the authorized history of Hammer films by Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes, which is the book I'm constantly referencing on this podcast, and it's amazing and a must own. They talked about the uh, the sort of state that Holt left the production in. Um, who was it? Uh, Carreras, Michael Carreras himself noted, quote, Seth hadn't shot any entrances or departures. He had only shot the main action. Perhaps he had planned to use dissolves, perhaps not. There were some very strange, incomplete sequences and a lot of missing material. The book goes on to note, although Carreras approached Gordon Hessler and Don Sharp to restart the film from scratch, he ultimately elected to complete the outstanding scenes himself, approximating Holt's style as best he could. The largest remaining sequence featured the asylum-bound Berrigan. Holt's funeral took place during the last few days of shooting. It was a remarkable send-off, according to actor James Villiers. Quote, Hammer lent us one of the original hearses from one of their many films with the plumed horses and the fine carriage with the black drapings and silver trappings used in every single Dracula film ever made, and we followed along behind this marvelous hearse and buried the old bean. Mm. I love that. I love that idea that Hammer sent the man off in... You know, in a hammer style. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, the one sad thing, though, was like the cast wasn't allowed to go. Like Valerie Leon wasn't allowed to go to the theater because she or to the funeral because she had to, to be on the shoot. And she was really upset about that. Like there there was some shit that like also wasn't super cool about yeah. how they handled his death. Like because they were just so desperate to like this was definitely a time of 
of Michael Carreras and not James. You know, like there was a little bit more cold calculation occurring, which is why I think some of the some of the experiences on set were less warm and fuzzy than when you hear about other movies that were made, you know, even around that time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to think of what that would have been had they, you know, in that situation, but sad at the same time. (laughs) It is kind of curious. I mean, isn't this the movie where Carreras sort of really came into his own as far as kind of taking the baton from his father? I was reading again in the same book, like he was, uh, you know, James was in need of like an experienced individual to start overseeing Hammer's production schedule. And so yeah. at this point, even though there had been kind of a divide, this movie was the one where he'd invited Michael back. And uh, this is where Michael Carreras had become Hammer's uh, managing director, which I thought was really interesting. So this is this is kind of like a key film in Hammer's history, weirdly enough. It is. Yeah. And it's kind of one of the only things that ended up really working uh, between him and um, uh, you know, his collaboration um, with wicking. Cause they, you know, they would go on to try to collaborate on a whole bunch of movies that would never get made. Um, and that, you know, we're supposed to sort of save the company. And yet this movie comes the closest to sort of accomplishing, I think what they, what they wanted to accomplish, which is marry the old with the new. Um, and it's funny because as, as late as 1969, Anthony Hines and, you know, uh, Jimmy Sangster were trying to pitch another mummy movie. And, and Carreras was like, Oh no, you know, that's, that's old hat. Nobody wants that. And then like, you know, a year later <laughs> or two years later, they're, they're making a mummy movie without the old guard. Mm. Um, and I find that really fascinating, especially given that the pitch was, was basically, Hey, let's do a mummy movie without a mummy, but a pretty girl, you know, like that. And, and careers was like, Oh, done easy. Yeah. I can see the poster now. That's it. <laughs> I like pretty girls. Yeah. Yes, and make a movie with one. Like the title, the way they came up with the title was careers was like, what are words associated with mummies? Blood tomb. Like, that's how they came up with the title. They just threw, they did like a words on a dartboard situation. It had nothing to do with anything. Um, no, you know, I would like here in a second, speaking of the title, it would be fun to talk about the source material that gave birth to this movie. But before yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. If, we, if we can take a second just to pause, I did want to ask, and Allie, I hope I'm not jumping the gun, but if I recall correctly, when we were doing uh, the commentary for Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, you noted that you specifically wanted to talk about this movie because you had a story about it. Nope, that's a straight up lie. Wait, really? <laughs> I just, no, I just love talking about mummy movies because like, I wanted to be an archaeologist growing up, so I've been, like, really into that shit for, like, my entire life and, like, love just telling people why these movies are, like, incorrect. Like, if they were to find her body, it would be super gross. If she were to come back to life, she wouldn't be a hot babe. She'd be, like, all shriveled up because her body would have had to have sat in salt for so long so they could pull all the moisture out of it. And also, bandages don't just fall off super easily. Like, they have... Yards and yards of linen that have like resin in between each layer, so it nice and hardens you and keeps you forever. Mummification's like a big business in Egypt. Allie, <laughs> did you really just Neil deGrasse Tyson blood from the mummy's tomb? 
<laughs> is that I, what happened here? You can't believe everything you see on the screen. I thought this was based on a true story, so my mind's blown. No, it's based on that um, book, the Jewel of the, the, Jewel of the Stars. Yeah, the Bram Stoker book from 1903. So you're which which was adapted previously before this. Can't by the come way. back to life. Wait, was it adapted before this? I thought yeah, this- there was a made-for-TV British film in 1970. Oh, okay, yeah, that I'm, was, I'm, that was I'm still first. on my you know personal burst bubble here when it comes to people. <laughs> so that's the last thing. Yeah. That's cool. I know it's it's hard to realize when when you when that day you realize mummies can't come back and be alive. Well, Next, we'll be telling you that Santa Claus have, doesn't exist. Yeah, they have no hey, brains. Their organs have this. been pulled out. They're not going to be human again. But do you know that their hearts are left in their body because the Egyptians believe that that was the center of like your whole self? I did not know that actually. It's very romantic. Guys, the Egyptians were a romantic culture. That is romantic. Allie, did you want to grow up to be Indiana Jones when you were a kid? Honestly, I really, truly did. That was like my focus was like, I want to be Indiana Jones. I don't want to find dinosaurs. That never really interested me. But I was like, ancient civilizations, dead bodies underground. I want to go see Pompeii and Egypt and like the Aztec like pyramids. I want to see all that shit. Henceforth. Shall forever be known on this podcast as Indiana Alley. Oh, yes. I'm into this. <laughs> All right. So on to the Jewel of the Seven Stars, written by Bram Stoker in 1903. It was originally adapted, I believe, as an episode of television in, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was like 1970. This yeah. was the first yes. major film adaptation of a handful, I believe, after this. But uh, this was the first time it was adapted with not too many changes. It was relatively faithful, right? Like the the main character's names of uh, Fuchs was changed, I believe, from... Uh, I've never seen this name before, so forgive me if I get it wrong, but is it Trelawney, maybe? And uh, there was a male hero in the original Stoker novel in a way that there isn't quite in this movie, but... Otherwise, it seemed to hit the major beats pretty pretty note for note. Yeah, the, the biggest change from what I could tell is that they switched around some of the plot. So, for example, like the opening of the movie, you don't really find that out until about halfway through the book. Like her death. And she's also not like a queen or a princess. She's a witch in the book. So people killed her because they were scared of her. Um, but like her hand is cut off. You know, so it's like if you dismember her body, they'll take away her power. But the book was much more set up like a like a mystery novel, like slowly unraveling the mystery of what's going on. Whereas the movie pretty much tells you right away what's going on. <laughs> There's not much of a mystery, um, even though the characters in the movie are sort of investigating the Terra stuff. The audience is well aware of what's happening. Is it weird that I didn't miss that aspect of it like i don't know like this movie is enjoyable enough as it is that i don't know that i needed that withheld from me as a viewer i didn't need that mystery in order to get sort of drawn in you know no i agree and and again it feels more modern for hammer you know it's kind of like plague of the zombies like opening with this sort of kind of intense scene that uh is is more like progresses the narrative a bit more um, something you might expect to see later in the film early, um, kind of out of context, but 
creating a cool sort of narrative drive, I thought was like a smart way to open the movie. Um, cutting off the hand is a little bit more grotesque. So it, it, it kind of lets you know that you might be in for something a little more exciting than what the traditional hammer movie might have thrown at you. Um, but it still feels classy in some ways, you know, even though it's, it's obviously more exploitative, um, with like the character's dress and everything like that. But, um, no, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier. I'm a really, really big fan of this movie. I think it's a, a really entertaining film. I think everyone does a really good job. Um, you know, even though I would have loved to see Peter Cushing in that role, I think Andrew Keir shows up and plays that role well. Um, you can tell he's he's sort of in a role that wasn't written for him um, because he's a little bit him and Cushing just have different mannerisms, um, different ways of carrying themselves. And this doesn't quite feel like an Andrew Keir role, but I think he shows up well to it. Um, and I like that Margaret's boyfriend name is Todd Browning. <laughs> Yeah, is this the first movie? Oh, sorry, Al, go ahead. No, I just truly never put together his name as Todd Browning. <laughs> do they do they actually say his full name out loud, or is it one of those Todd and then later Mr. Browning? You know, I don't know. I just know he it, like he's credited as Todd Browning. I don't know if it if they say that or not. But is this um... the first instance of like? That sort of horror nerd filmmaker thing where, you know, you name something Craven Street or Sheriff Carpenter or, you know. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty early for that. This has got to be one of the more early meta horror references, right? I can't think of really any before this. And what's curious is, what the hell does Todd Browning have to do with The Mummy? Like, I it had to have been he was just a fan (laughs) of his work. I think they just, I think, yeah, I think he's just an influence, right? Like, that's got to be it. Um, and we should probably talk about Valerie Leon, of course. I mean, oh, she's so beautiful. How lecherous am I allowed to be? You said what? How lecherous am I allowed to be? I mean, it's the Hammer Pub. You can. You can be I'm honest. kidding. I wouldn't be lecherous. I do think <laughs> she is astonishingly beautiful in this film. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and she's so strong too. Like she has this, like her her statuesque appearance. Like she has this ability to be to be like intimidating and demure, you know. Her beauty al- allows her certain sort of traits, but at the same time, the way she carries herself um, and and her performance really does like drive the movie forward. It's it's a very piercing performance um, outside of her obvious, you know, beauty. Um, so I, I think that's because there's plenty of beautiful actresses that you could put in this role that probably wouldn't do half the job that she does. You're right. There is something, though. I mean, even when the movie opens on that shot of the, uh, you know, the, the the sky full of stars, there's this sort of hint of like cosmic dread. And I think they needed, you know, could they have gotten like, say, Veronica Carlson? You know, to play her, sure, or Carolyn Monroe, maybe, or any, as you noted, any number of uh, actors could have filled that role and would have done a great job with their performance. But there is something about Valerie Leone who, she's so striking in a way, but she's, for all the reasons you noted, she is, there's a mystery to her, I think. Uh, Not just in her performance, but, yeah, I mean, the way she carries herself, she... 
as beautiful as she is, there seems to be like this ever present threat. You know what I mean? And I don't think that's simply borne out by the plot. You know, we see her obviously as the mummy character at the very beginning, but even throughout the movie, I just, there's a sense that you can't fully trust her, even though she's ostensibly the movie's heroine. Or am I the only one who's getting that? Like to me, there was something about her where I almost would have loved to have seen like a hammer production of, uh, um, you know, like Macon's The Great God Pan starring her. You know, I think she would have been incredible in a role like that because, uh, you know, that would have been essentially doing kind of the same thing. But I don't know. I I, I really dug her performance and her contributions to this movie. Um, I think there's something about her in this film that's just kind of unknowable in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, and it's funny, too, because the way she got this job was James Carreras saw her in a series of commercials for, like, Aftershave. Oh, God. She did. Um, she yeah, became she famous for that. What well, were you saying, Ellie? I say she didn't do a whole lot, like, movie-wise, did she? I feel like. No. Um, no, I think it was. famously credited as a hotel receptionist in the original Italian job. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and she, well, she became famous in Britain because there was this, there was this aftershave called high karate and there were these, you can watch. So no joke. Cause I went and looked it up when I wrote the article, you can watch her commercials on YouTube. Um, and I watched like all the high karate commercials. So I was curious. You want to buy high karate? Well, the funny thing is they're very, very funny. They feel really modern. Like it was, you know how, like, okay, you know what they reminded me of? They reminded me of those. Uh, uh, old Spice commercials, you know, like the funny ones yeah. where it's like like really irreverent comedy that like has nothing to do with Old Spice deodorant or aftershave or whatever, but it's like really really funny and weird. That's kind of what they were, which feels like a bit ahead of its time, but it always starred her. It was always like the idea of the commercials was like some dopey guy would put on high karate aftershave and then like beautiful women would like attack them because they're so, you know, like they want them so bad. They like chase after them. So she was always like the beautiful woman that would like go after the dude who put on the aftershave and like, but it required like it, it, like she would attack them in some sort of like staged choreographed karate fight kind of way, like Kung Fu style. And so she actually had to, like, do shit in these commercials. It wasn't just her standing there being beautiful. So I can totally see how someone could watch those and be like, oh, she should be in a movie. Like, this is somebody with real talent. Like, what is she doing advertising Aftershave? Um, But it's kind of fun that, like, he saw those commercials and was like, I'm going to make her star in a movie. I mean, I love it. Okay, I did just look it up. Um, she is also 5'11". So, oh, she's tall. I was going to say, maybe that contributes in some way to her seeming kind of imposing in the film, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, by the way, I'm queuing up the high karate. Uh, I love that high is actually spelled H-A-I. Yeah, it's H-A-I. Yeah. So it's like height, you know, it's... High- oh. Yeah, it's it's just kind of a fun anecdote. Oh, lost my headphones here. There we go. I messed up my mic. Little gaff there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually really like this uh, flashback scene since we're here. I do too. Also, I think it's. Oh, go ahead. 
Mine's a dumb point. No, make it. <laughs> well, literally any movie where a female lead gets to wear an excessive amount of jewelry as a top. Like, that's always a key where I'm like, oof, that's nice. Like, in this I like one, it. Her, like, giant necklace is just also her shirt. But also in, like, Queen of the Dead, <laughs> that giant necklace is her shirt. And Isabella Rossellini in Death Becomes Her, her necklace is just a shirt. And I'm like, into this. This is a look that we could always have. That's a good point. And all of those characters kind of feel of a piece. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I totally get what you're saying. Isabel well, Rossellini think... totally could have been in a mummy film, I think. Why wasn't she? Because she like embodies that like statuesque Cleopatra-esque vibe to her. By the way, I do have a treat for listeners out there. I don't know if this is going to get us into any sort of copyright issues, but fuck it. Um gonna play it anyway. Here is a high karate commercial. Let's see if it plays well in audio. <laughs> Ready, yeah. everyone? Because why not? This is high karate aftershave. If a man uses too much, he's asking for trouble. And usually finds it. And Valerie Leon is now attacking the man. She's pursuing him like Michael Myers. Because she's supernaturally attracted to his form. She powers over him. She's now packing him down to a bed. Be careful how you use it. And the, the bed the, was one of those fold-up numbers. So after she tackled him onto the bed, the bed folded up. And, uh, yeah, I'll bet that guy had a neat day. Those commercials are actually so much fun to watch. Like, <laughs> I, I had a good time going through them. They're, they're, they're very solid. I, <laughs> I do think this sequence is one of the best examples of, like, Seth Holt's talent as a director, though. Um kind of the, the shadowy ghostliness of of the tomb like the supernatural presence that the space kind of manifests um and it kind of brings bleed bleeds life into the artifacts that we're supposedly supposed to be collecting and things like that because there's kind of a macguffin element to, to all of this um the mysticism that's imbued with all all of these things i i just think that the sequence really solidifies all that for the remainder of the film Yeah, I would agree with that. No, it is like there is. Do you all not get the sense, though, that if you were watching this for the first time, like Paul, when you saw it for the first time, Allie, when you saw it for the first time, like who did you feel that your hero was? Um, My hero is always what's her butt? Tara, Tara and the queen. Okay. Well, yeah, because she's she's kind of the victim. She, um, in she is, but do you fully trust her in the way that you would, say, a heroine in another story like this? Well, I mean, all I mean, we know of a... her, even even back in her day, we don't know, like, her full story. But all we see is a bunch of men, like, being afraid of her power and dismantling it so she can't have it anymore. Uh, that's literally every man against every woman. How dare For you? Sure. For Look sure. Look at Texas right now. Men hate women. <laughs> and it's And it's awful. And it and it makes it very easy to sort of like suddenly feel like okay, well, this is my hero. This is the person I'm rooting for. You yeah, know, do you because think the movie then? then condemns that. Like so, what? Do you think the movie then can? I mean, does you know? I was remember reading about the Jewel of the Seven Stars, and they're talking about this uh, 
you know, the story was written in 1903, so it was dealing with some themes at the time that were obviously of interest. And one of them was the emergence of this idea of the, quote, new woman, uh, you know, middle class feminists who sort of were seeking social and sexual freedom. And I'm just wondering, like, do you feel as though this film celebrates that or tries to stifle it by making its, well, the subject of, you know, our sympathies, you know, essentially also potentially villainous in the sense that, you know, we, we have the mummy who is kind of like representing all the things that are giving our lead power, as it were. Like, does that make any sense at all? Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think, Ellie? What what's your take on this? I am not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, I I can't. I'm just saying, like, I can't quite. By the end of the movie, I think the movie works well as like marvelous pulp. I think it's just a fun damn film that's incredibly well made. When it comes to like any sort of deeper themes, I don't know if this movie stands on the side of feminism or if it stands against it. You know what I mean? I think it was a little more. You're right. I I don't think it takes a, a strong stand on that when I wish it, I wish it had. Um, It feels more interested in sort of, subverting the i don't know the patriarchal kind of head of state um that something like the devil rides out positions as the hero and making that the villain um and making the sort of the underclass um you know the the people who sort of are under the the toe of that patriarchy the ones that you're rooting for. Um, and I, I don't know if that has more to do with feminism specifically, or if it's about like society as a whole, again, like trying to appeal to uh, the, the counterculture, uh, the youthful counterculture of the sixties in a way and seventies. I see. Okay. Yeah. I could see that. I just, yeah, yeah, I'm, it's kind of nebulous to me. Like I don't, I can't quite get a handle on the subtext in that regard. And I don't know if I'm meant to is the thing. Like I, I don't know how much the movie was ultimately concerned with it, you know, or how much was just stumbled across uh, by virtue of the fact that they, you know, adapted pre-existing material that probably I've never read the short story, but I have to imagine that Bram Stoker took greater care in wrestling with that theme. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think some of that stuff is there. Um, but yeah, I don't know that it's fully that all of it works or that it manifests entirely, you know. But I do think like, again, it, when you look at the sort of patriarchal authority and who they oppress, right, like these these men, these people from Britain going to another country, digging up a tomb um, and digging up this woman and taking all her shit, <laughs> you know, that don't belong to them. And then getting upset when she sort of like wants it back <laughs> and and takes revenge on them for doing it like that, that in and of itself kind of conjures some of these feelings against that very system. What well, does, but like even, 
I feel like even that theme was better handled in far worse films. You know, the previous two mummy movies each kind of touched on, you know, the notion of imperialism, but here it's kind of like, well, are they merely crypt robbers or were they stifling? Uh, well, obviously like the leads in the present time oh. are, are robbers. Certainly they're thieves, but you know, the people and they, and they rob were, each other, right? Like right, that's right, the right. thing. It's Robert, like, they're not even, Oh, sorry. But even yeah. the initial, uh, you know, act of violence against the, the, the mummies or the woman, you know, we, <laughs> is it really fully spelled out as to whether or not like her powers are in reacting to, you know, the men who sort of, uh, I don't know, held her under their thumb or was she merely evil and they were trying to dispatch her for that? You know what I mean? Well, oh, go ahead. I don't think she was evil. I think she was just a woman in power and men were intimidated by that. And, you know, can't have that. I do like the coincidence that Margaret and the queen just, like, happen to be identical. That's always a fun trope. (laughs) Well, and don't they suggest that, like, the day she was born was the day they, like, found the tomb and stuff. So there's this maybe, like, transference that occurred. It's borderline like a changeling sort of thing, right? Yeah. Because the, the baby was born. I mean, there's no heartbeat. And then, you know, when they they sort of raid the crypt and there's the scream, then all of a sudden the baby roars to life, you know, and lives again and grows up to look exactly like her. I get the feeling there's meant to be a bit of substitution there. And yet, you know, what does that mean for the ending? You know, is it is it a woman fighting her own reincarnation? You know, is it one soul sharing two bodies? Like, what what are we meant to make of that? Or who won? I think is part of that question. Oh, totally. Who's who's in the bed at the end? Right. Um, I mean, the fact yeah. that they found her naked kind of tells all the story you need to. I know what I think, but I don't know. Well, I think it's. I think that's a really forward thinking mm-hmm. ending. You know that that's very modern. Um, and the fact that they don't answer that question is much more interesting than if they had. And 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 to your point, all this stuff is the the sins of the fathers manifesting in their young, right? Like the their yeah. kids having to deal with their bullshit. <laughs> you know, the moral superiority of the of the older generation um, is think, is ultimately subverted by all of their sins, which befall the youth. Wes Craven likely would have dug the hell out of this movie. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, to your point, I, I I like this. I think this movie, like, and uh, this may be sacrilege in Hammer camps, but I, I, this is my favorite Mummy movie. I'm just going to say it. I like this one the best. I know that there's a Terrence Fisher Mummy. I know it's better made. <laughs> I'm not arguing that, but I think this is more fun and interesting. <laughs> it, it, it's, I... I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we understand. It's. Oh, God. No, man. I like the original. Yeah. But here's. OK, you're not wrong. This is a more enjoyable movie. Like there are stretches of the Terrence Fisher movie that let's go ahead and say it. By the third time, the fucking mummy breaks into a study and attacks somebody. It, it gets very. It, yeah. If they're done that, there's there are dull stretches in that film. But. It's so beautifully made and so wonderfully acted. And it does tell like this kind of 
admittedly simple kind of crackerjack tale, but it does, you know, it is it's wrestling with some interesting things. I think this one, I think is a lot of fun. I, I think it's a marvelous movie. I don't know that it quite reaches. How's this? We can find common ground here. Uh, Samara Weaving was great in Ready or Not, and uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb is hands down better than Hammer's second and third Mummy films. Can we at least all agree on that? Oh, I, I yeah, and I and I get it. I I don't I don't say that hoping to like convince you guys. Like I think <laughs> it's totally fair to to love the Fisher one more. I was just more expressing my thing on it, like just wa- how it played for me. You know, Allie, how about um, you? Like, how does how does it rank for you, Hammer Mummy wise? Um, I think this would fall second, but like a close second because I do like the Terrence Fisher one, but I also just I'm like obsessed with Valerie Leone in this, so I think that really ups it for me. Also, I like this whole deal that they're just like, you know what? We're going to, I'm obsessed with this dead body. We're going to keep it. And I'm also just going to rebuild her entire tomb in my house. It's super chill. That's not creepy. Yeah, not weird at all. Not weird at all. And what? I, <laughs> yeah, I love, I love it. I love how fun it is. It's really fun, but it still deals with a lot of those really interesting themes. And I, I also think like, even though it was born out of a cynical sort of pitch, like, oh, let's make a beautiful woman the mummy. I think that's an interesting concept. Like, what if the mummy isn't the traditional mummy? Like, how would that subvert expectations? And how would that character be able to sort of exact her, you know, revenge in ways that a bandaged mummy would not be able to do? Um, and it, it almost feels a bit like a vampire movie hybrid in a way like it it has a lot in common with hammer vampire movies where her beauty and her allure sort of is a weapon she's able to use um and can kind of like hypnotize people in a way and 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 there's just this kind of i don't know this power to the character that i just don't feel in some of the other mummy movies um and i also like you know, when it comes down to it, this movie's about sort of collecting artifacts from the other archaeologists. And so you get this kind of, um, you know, hopping from odd character actor to odd character actor. And some of them are sort of serious. And some of these performances are just straight camp. Like, you know, you go so over the top in some of these scenes but it gets to play across multiple different tones, which I find really refreshing. And I think, you know, Holt balances that really well. And and so does the screenplay. Um, like it, it, it really shouldn't have worked, but for whatever reason, it just, it works incredibly well. And I, and I also like uh, James Villiers Corbeck. I think he's a great villain. He is very good in it, but you're right. It's hard to not imagine like Christopher Lee, you know. Yeah, I don't think Lee could have handled the camp elements of this movie, but I think with Cushing in the, you know, in the Keir role, I think they would have played off of each other very well. Can we, I'm, I, I agree with everything that you've said here in the last two minutes, but I also just want to take a second to say Todd Browning's brown leather jacket 
is pretty kick-ass. It's pretty great. The style in this movie is impressive as hell, I think. Yeah, that that's what I'm saying is like it it is well directed. Even though it's you know, this guy isn't Terrence Fisher, but he knows what he's doing. It's a yeah. it's a pretty movie. Well, there's some really inventive camera work. There like the way he chooses to frame certain sequences. Uh there's some really hypnotic sequences that feel like you noted, like very modern and something that you know, there are stretches of this movie that are absolutely hammer, and then there are stretches that feel maybe a little more amicus and then there are stretches that just feel like hey like this was a modern as hell like 70s horror film you know yeah um and it's funny too you know given that it was a hammer movie and it was kind of like you know it was it was allowing the company to evolve there was something that i read uh in the book it noted that um the film actually i think this is so cool the film premiered as part of a retrospective of uh, Hammer Films, like the National Film Theater throughout yeah. October and November of 1971 basically did a retrospective on Hammer and ran loads of their films. And I don't know if it culminated with a showing of Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, but Blood from the Mummy's Tomb actually premiered as part of the retrospective before it would eventually go on to uh, be the B movie under uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And I just, I think that's so cool that it was all about, you know, there was this event that was looking back at Hammer's history, but then they just premiered the brand new movie as part of it. I, I, I think that's neat. In a much smaller way, it reminded me, uh, and feel free to laugh, it reminded me of Curse of Chucky, you know, the brand new like uh, uh, Chucky movie that came out. What was it like 2011, 2012, something like that? Like they came out with a box set of all of the previous Chucky movies, but then it had a brand new Chucky movie in it. I just thought that was cool as hell. So I don't know. I, I love the idea that they premiered this movie that might very well have pulled them into a new era by, you know, sort of couching it within all that had come before. Yeah. No, it was just a new fact that I didn't know. And now I'm happy that I do know it. Yeah. I, I, I had read about that as well. Um, the BFI put that on, uh, which Carreras was thrilled about because it was the moment where hammer was embraced as a component of cinematic culture worthy of study and analysis and celebration and not simply just the, you know, purveyor of lurid sleaze that the studio had always been labeled as being. Um, so it was this really important milestone for the studio, but also a bittersweet one because, I mean, it was it was the end, right? We were we were trucking towards the end of Hammer's run, um, but that almost almost kind of makes sense. You know, it's kind of like now that Hammer's a bit in the rearview mirror, that's when they're sort of acknowledged. <laughs> we we never loved Jerry Lewis while he was here, you know. It's yeah. uh, wow. it's after he's gone that we look back and call him a genius. Uh, no, I love that. I love that Carreras. You know, I love that they got you know a little bit of the limelight, even if it was near the end. Uh, there is this quote, uh, Paul, that runs right alongside uh, what you noted, where Carreras had uh, said, <clears throat> "quote The Hammer Horror is becoming an intellectual topic of conversation among students." Uh, almost overnight, we seem to have become cultural. And I just, I kind of love that. I love the fact that they they were garnering a little bit of appreciation. They were able to enjoy a little bit of that before it was all yeah. over and done with. 
I do like that. And and it's good that they were around to see it, you know, because that must have been just one of the most emotionally satisfying things ever. Having the BFI throw a big, you know, premiere for you and doing a retrospective on your movies, like the very same people who were like, you know, scoffing at what you were doing just a decade before, you know, it, to see them then like roll out the red carpet and, and acknowledge how important what you had done for the genre was and not just the genre, but for movies in general and for British cinema. Yeah. For you know? British heavily. It's, it's crazy. Like how instrumental hammer was in getting British cinema to be more accepted worldwide. I think every artist should be able to enjoy that kind of recognition, at least, you know, in, in some measure, like you hear stories about it, it just, it breaks my heart. Like that, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe had no idea how beloved yeah. his work would be one day, you know, like he enjoyed a little bit of it. You know, the Raven obviously garnered him a lot of attention and acclaim for a time, but the fact that he died penniless, you know, and uh, with, with no hint or preview, the fact that his work would be, you know, it would never go out of print. You know, I just, it, that bums me out so completely. It reminds me weirdly. Um, <laughs> Have you ever seen the film Chaplin from the 90s, the biopic about Charlie Chaplin with uh, Robert Downey yeah. Jr.? It's so good. It, it's brilliant. Paul, have you seen it? I've not seen it. Okay, so spoiler alert for a 30-year-old film. Um, <laughs> there is a moment, uh, I mean, it, it's close to the end of the film where it wraps up where a retrospective of his career is run. And you get a montage of all these clips of him as a young man and all of the you know, the various roles that he played, obviously the tramp being uh, key and the audience watching it is just laughing, you know, and there's just such joy uh, there. And then it cuts to just a shot of him as an old man sitting in a wheelchair, watching all these images and hearing the audience laughing and just enjoying it and tears roll down his face. And it's just like one of the most beautiful moments about cinema and about filmmaking, about art making really that I've, I've, I've seen in movies. It reminds me of the end of uh in a much different way, like Cinema Paradiso, you know, has kind of an ending like that that just really sort of tugs at the heartstrings, I think. So I don't know. That's a long way around of saying, like, it's just it's a shame that some artists will never know how much they were appreciated. And I love that Carreras and company got to got mm -hmm. to sort of appreciate that a little bit. Yeah. I like your two examples for that were these, like, beautiful cinematic movies. And my example would have been ever seen that infantile and stupid gesture about the guys who made the National Lampoon? No, but I want to see this. What is this? Will Forte. It's on Netflix. Uh, and it's a comedy, but it ends with him, you know, like what happened to Doug Kenny is that he may or may not have killed himself. He could have fallen, but either way, he died before realizing that his work actually does become a big success and he wasn't just a joke. Hmm. I love that. I love that idea. Interesting. Yeah. No, I have to check that out. I haven't seen that. Oh, if you love National Lampoons and like that old SNL gang, it's so, it's so good. It's so funny too. There was, um, while we're talking this, because this podcast is about digressions and I do dearly love them. Um, are I, Paul, I know you've watched some Doctor Who. Allie, Doctor Who, anything? I have seen the Van Gogh episode. Okay, so you've seen the best <laughs> episode in the entire show. Um, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> I adore that. I am a weepy wreck. It's a heartbreaking scene. Oh, I can't deal with it. 
Okay. Weirdly enough, I wasn't going to mention that one, but that one kind of like does the same thing, right? He it does exactly the same thing, you know. Van Gogh gets to go and see that people appreciate him, and his work has meaning. That fancy museum in Paris that I've been to that I can't think of what it's called, but like it's such a beautiful, heartbreaking moment. You're just like, I'm happy you got to see it. Yeah. That's a, I'm not even going to mention the thing that I was going to because I think your episode uh, better sells that idea. I love Doctor Who. Damn it. The show can make you laugh. It can uh, make you shriek and it can make you cry. Often in the same episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, all my opinions are from the one episode that I've seen, but it was a really good episode. So, like. <laughs> all right. So now we have, um, honestly. A scene that is far better directed than it has any right to be. There is no reason that a scene with a fake snake that we know is a fake snake should work as well as it does when the fake snake attacks. Like this is just masterful shooting and editing here. And it I mean, is, you know, we were no wonder that he, you know, named one of the characters Todd Browning, like all of these shots here. This is pure like German expressionism, right? Like this is early universal horror. A um, little bit of Al Luton, maybe even. But I mean, it's it's marvelous how it works. And they never needed a, a real snake. You know, they didn't need a rubber snake. They didn't need anything. They just used a statue and shadows. And it's fucking terrifying. Well, this is George Caloris, isn't it? The actor? I honestly do not know. Uh, Yeah, I think he... And he was in, like, Citizen Kane. (laughs) (laughs) This guy. This guy being attacked by the snake, I believe. Oh, come on. Do we we not all agree that the snake sequence is awesome? It's great. I just just think it's funny that he went from Citizen Kane to being attacked by a fake snake in a Hammer movie in the 70s. He he had like 40, well, no, like 30 years to prepare himself, you know. Well, he needed it to really sell this scene. I love his performance in this movie. It's very, again, his is borderline camp compared to some of the other ones. But I I like that. I, I like that there's varying degrees of insanity sort of put into these characters and in the book from what i read you know the they were more colleagues and these they're sort of enemies you know like these people don't trust each other there's no sort of love between them but you have to wonder if maybe like what they've done and what they've taken has altered them in some way oh that's that i mean you know maybe it's not fully in the text of the film but my feeling was that they've been you know, if not friends and certainly colleagues, you know, early on, but it was the fact that they had taken the items and had gone away that sort of slowly poisoned that, you know, uh, and right. it turned them on one another. Um, I don't know. I also, one thing that we didn't talk about so far that I like in this movie is the uh, consistent vision of the seven aligning stars. Mm-hmm. I think that that's brought to life in cool ways, like, I like when, you know, it's stuff like the, like, light through the crystal ball dancing on a carpet, looking like the stars, or, like, buttons on a jacket. Like, he finds really cool, interesting visual cues to to sort of refer to that, um, that, again, are the mark of a really talented director, not just, and, 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 a, and a nice visual theme. 
Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Plus, I like do the love the fact of that... Fate. Okay, this shot coming up right here, the slow motion, her walking right toward the camera. This is like, and this is not the first time in Hammer. This is probably not the 50th time in Hammer, and I'm certain it's not the first time that I mentioned it on this podcast, but this is totally like a 70s gothic romance paperback cover brought it to life. Is. And I love it. Oh, yeah, There's... it's so good. Slow it down even more. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you need 10 minutes of her just walking. It's, I, I mean, mean part of fair. it is like, it's like 90% gothic paperback cover and like 10% precursor to 80s music videos. Yes. Like if you threw a little like hair metal underneath that. Oh, I'd be in. Well, and that shot is in, I'm pretty sure every single trailer. I mean, it's the shot, you know, like that's, that's the, that's the set piece. It's just There's a, a couple of TV spots that are literally only that shot. <laughs> <laughs> With like a narrator. <laughs> when you have Valerie Leone, really. I mean, just, that's it's it. a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty sold. easy way to get people to watch the movie. <laughs> 100%, yeah. I mean, I'd watch which, Paul. Uh, or Allie, either of you, really. Like, you both probably know, uh, and I don't. Was this movie a success? Uh, yes. Okay, <laughs> good. made money. Because I was like, uh, I have no idea. I know what the yeah, budget is. It, it, it did well. Um, it, it went out, um, oh my gosh, in the U.S. with uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde under AIP. Because AIP acquired the rights to this, um, and it did very well. Uh, which is odd because this would be the last Mummy movie they make, and I'm pretty sure one of the last movies adapted from sort of you know classic horror text. You know, they would adapt. Um, they would, you know, to Dennis to, Wheatley again, right? Wheatley would be adapted again, but that you know that was a bit more slightly more contemporary than than this and that movie also had its fair share of problems um, you said problems sir are we problems. are we are we gonna dance around no we'll, we'll, what can we talk about that movie when we get to it no <laughs> i want to prepare people sir yeah. just brace yourselves folks out there for to the devil a daughter ali do you know why paul and i might be sort of uh not giddy to talk about that particular film. Uh, have you no, have you seen I it? I haven't seen it either. Oh, you okay? Then I will not. Well, wait. Um, I mean, you know, we'll have a whole podcast to talk about. It's it's a good movie. Kloskinski's you know, horrible uh, decisions. Um, but he's ripe with them. It's good. Uh, yeah, he's bad. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly, right. truly evil. Right. Oh boy. Um, but yeah, but yeah no, it, I, it, I, I, it, I, it I will say, well. actually, good movie though. Uh, it's a good film. It just, it's good. Yeah, it's we'll, it's we'll not it. I, it's not great. Like it, it, I I definitely have issues with it, but it's it's well made and it's one of Hammer's. I mean, it's really one of Hammer's final movies. Um, it was the final one, right? Uh, the, the final Hammer horror. 
te- technically, even though it wasn't like re- release structure makes it weird because like if you go by like films that were released in the UK versus films that were released in the US and stuff like that, there were movies that were really uh, were released after it. But I think it was the last one produced. I'm glad to hear that this one did well. I am curious. I wonder if it did better than the A picture that AIP put out. Uh, because honestly, I think this one seems like much more the crowd pleaser than uh, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. In a oh, weird yeah. way, like, honestly, why, out of the, okay, I'll get both of your opinions here. What makes Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde the A picture and this movie the B picture? You can't say it was the star power. Of Jekyll and Sister because like look I love me some Ralph Bates but I don't know that he was on the marquee for any movie here in the States back in the early 70s you know what I mean I, huh. yeah I think it was and Ellie you can you know say what what your thoughts are I I, I think it, it was more of a hunch I think they just assumed well Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is sort of a catchy idea um, that that is bizarre and will sort of like draw people in a little bit more it was a little bit more of a slasher which was starting to become the thing and the mummy idea is a little bit more classic versus contemporary so i think they just hedged their bets maybe yeah i would agree with that statement my whole thing was gonna be that yeah it's more of a slasher giallo and that was a hotter ticket isn't it curious though that that double bill oh i'm sorry i'll go ahead Sorry, I just felt that the other film with the Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde moved faster than this film did, so I felt like it probably had a better chance of holding its audiences more, even though this is... No, I'm not going to say it's a superior film. I think Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde might be the superior film. Ooh, I I think I might like this one more. Um, I love them both in their... I love well, them both, I, I don't but love I love them, them both in different both. ways. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, though, that this double bill that AIP put out, they're both films based on classic horror characters, mm-hmm. but both are gender bent in a way. Like, you know, you, you have a female hide in one, you have a female mummy in the other. I think that's kind of curious, you know, and it's interesting. And I wonder if that was something that Hammer had planned or if it was just kind of a happy accident uh, when it came to, you know, how they were producing these films, you know, the schedule, as it were. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's it is interesting. And and again, I think it was them trying to connect with a with a counterculture that they were they were constantly chasing. Um, And as I said before, I think the simplest answer to that problem was the correct one. And yet it was the one that they kept running away from. And, And what I mean by that is marry the classic with the contemporary you know make make the gothics make the beautiful gothics uh uh that that you're capable of making and infuse them with themes that are more modern you know like similar to dr jekyll and sister hyde like bring in some of the gender bending stuff you know but still focus in on making uh something that you know, feels like a classical, you know, hammer gothic. Um, I, I think this movie maybe maybe accomplishes that element stylistically a little bit more, uh, you know, deftly. But 
I think they both kind of fit that mold. I, but I think as time goes by, they get farther and farther away from that. I just kind of wish both had been successful enough for Hammer to consider doing, you know, gender switches on all of the classic characters, you know? I mean, up until this point, you know, how many years prior would it have been that we got Frankenstein created woman? So we did have, like, a female creature in that, but... You know, damn it, give me give me like a female Dracula movie that's not merely yeah. Countess Dracula. You know what I mean? Although maybe that was an attempt too. Who knows? Well, I love Countess Dracula. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> it's I, no, not, I'm not, a, it's the not a Dracula movie. movie though. Exactly. Like yeah. that's kind of the issue with it. I was like, I kept waiting for it to be a Dracula movie. I was like, halfway through, I was like, oh, this isn't that, is it? This isn't that. <laughs> this is a very misleading title. I really love the film, but come on, guys. Can I ask, gang, like, where where is my 1970s female werewolf movie? You know what I mean? I it I'm I feel we were robbed of a werewolf franchise in Hammer's repertoire. Yeah, they just had like a really strong opening film. Maybe we might have gotten. I'm sorry. What was that, Jinx? <laughs> are we? Are we... Back to shitting on Curse of the Werewolf, one of the best movies the Hammer ever made. Yeah. Okay, I just knocked over my mic. Hang on. You did. You did. Because you were so disappointed in yourself. And I understand. I, I get it. Curse of the Werewolf is top five Hammer. <laughs> By the way. But that's yeah. fine. In general, we need more werewolf films. I feel like we have a lot of individual standalone warehouse, like. Not even a lot of standalone werewolf, werewolf films. I keep wanting to say warehouse. That's not what I want. Warehouse films? I, I'm in LA for warehouse movies. And a warehouse. Yeah, all the warehouse movies. Werewolf in a warehouse. Call it Ooh, werewolf, werewolf, but be like W-A-R-E, wolf. Let's do it. Werewolf. Okay. Yeah, right, okay. Right. Or right. warehouse. W-E-R-E, house. You know, either way, really. Well, and the funny thing is, every time a werewolf movie does come out, it's generally good. Like, they're all they're all pretty good. I mean, are they? I mean, I can. What? What? In the last like couple of years, almost every one that's come out's been good. What's been bad? What is one that's come out? In, wait. Oh, I just saw one that was a new film this year. The Wolf of Snow Hollow was great. Um, yeah, but that's the, only a werewolf movie. Okay, yeah, it is. Werewolf. It's a werewolf movie. Yeah. Even regardless of what a werewolf, uh, calling something a werewolf movie uh, is more about like the thematics of it and what yeah. it's what it's sort of bringing about. It is. It fits. I, yeah. I would. I would agree uh, with that. I would agree with that, and then assert that the Wolf of Snow Hollow is still not a werewolf movie. And I like the movie. I like the movie. It's it's a werewolf movie. Anyway, um, there was a the, new. Uh, called bloodthirsty i want to say oh i didn't see that one that one was really good and i felt that that was a good like what's the movie. what's the really funny one that just came out that was good werewolves uh, within yeah that's great werewolves within was good yeah. oh yeah and uh uh late phases is great see late tons of them great. okay everyone we're naming is good yeah, always fall with name four yeah that then they're all good <laughs> <laughs> i you know what my problem with werewolf movies is is that and uh, oh, I'm gonna catch hate mail on this. No, I'm not because nobody writes this. But if they did, I would catch a lot of hell for what I'm about to say. The thing that bugs me the most about werewolf movies is the fact that whenever somebody holds up, like whenever you have that conversation, what are the greatest werewolf movies? What are the best? What are the, you know, everyone always says, an American Werewolf in London, and The Howling. Sure. 
To which I say, no. What about all the, like, what about ginger snaps? Ginger snaps? Ginger snaps and, uh, 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 fuck, um, dog soldiers are my American werewolf and, uh, can I be, can I be basic for a second? Can I just be a basic horror fan? Like, super, super basic. Sip your I do think American Werewolf in London is is my definitive, absolute, hands down best werewolf movie. But that doesn't mean that I discredit all the other ones. Just because I would I I I, I would counter your thing with sometimes the reason those same movies keep coming up is because they are that good. No, I'm not. Here's the thing. I'm not knocking. I have to accept at a certain point when, like, everybody says those two are the best that, you know, then that's fine. They're widely recognized as being the best. What I'm trying to say is that they're not. (laughs) It's all. No, I I, I, I get that. I I, I disagree. I I think I think. Do you you know what an American werewolf in London is to me? An American werewolf in London is Is the best werewolf movie. It is two. Great lead performances and the greatest practical effects showcase, uh, including, I'm sorry, The Thing, I love you, Rob Boutin, and The Thing is amazing, but friggin' Rick Baker's work on an American Werewolf yeah, of London, that absolutely. transformation sequence is hands down yes. the best special effects sequence okay, ever so... in the film. And that is it. The can rest I, of the I, movie is a tonal and structural fucking mess. That's not, that's your opinion. <laughs> I disagree. I, I could my, not disagree more. I can show I, we, you know what we need to do? We need to do like a debate episode where we yes. can actually spend time on this because I, I totally disagree. You know what's that, crazy? That the movie is, is a mess. I think it's a, I think it's a perfect animal of a movie for like, what, what is, what is crazy is that we can actually do that right now too. No, we're good. That's what this podcast but, is. But uh, uh, what I'll say is this. Sometimes you know, in a werewolf movie, a great transformation it is kind of like the most important thing sometimes. I, I, I think like, it, especially in a creature effect film. So I think one, that alone gives it like a ton of points for why. But no, for that, for I mean, for me, I love comedy and I love horror. And I think that that movie walks the tonal comedy horror line beautifully. I think it 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 does it in a way that really no other movie I can think of from that time period does. Um, And I love how. Uh, the emotional core of the movie with the guy sort of having to accept that he's going to have to die Um, and it does like it not having a happy ending um, was really like formative for me when I was like watching horror movies and kind of like learning about them and seeing something that was really funny and fun and kind of getting to know these characters and then to have it end the way that it ends. I was like, Oh wow, that's really, really striking. And it shows, showed me sort of like, again, like we're talking about counterculture, the counterculture that horror is able to sort of embody Having said that, are there vamp or are there werewolf movies that like like you mentioned Ginger Snaps? Ginger Snaps has a lot more to say than either of those films, for sure. And like is is more like emotionally impacting in that way. And so like I totally get why someone would say that's the best one. But I don't think it's I don't think we should like discredit people who love the classics. Like no, I don't. And, 
And and my thing is like I don't. I I, I, I'll be honest. Like, and here's my here's my thing that would get me kicked out of a horror club. I do not like the howling all that much. I don't think it's that good. <laughs> I love great, the howling great. too, though. <laughs> oh, the howling too. Your sister is a werewolf. Is is amazing. Um, the Howling one, I just can't get into it. And I love, but I will say, I think the effects in the Howling are very impressive. Um, and are Great worth, effects. Yeah, are totally Great worth effects. exploring. Yeah. But like if I made a top 10 werewolf movie list, I'm not even sure the Howling would be on mine. Great effects, great lead performance by D. Wallace. And that's it's awesome. beautifully shot. It's like an EC comic come to life. And that's it. That's all that movie has going for it. And well, it's got like that weird Island of Dr. Moreau thing going on. And I just can't get into it, but I don't, I don't hate it. I just don't love it, but I do love American werewolf in London. I love, it's one of my like absolute favorite horror movies. See, that's okay. We do need to have a debate episode because this would probably take an hour and a half because I will say like where you see a movie like perfectly walking like the razor's edge, like between horror and comedy, I see like a drunken dude stumbling down that line and falling on either side of the face first about 20 times. It's hard nowadays because like when I defend it, then it's like I got to defend John Landis, who's a monster. And I'm like, I don't. I don't want to defend John Landis. So I'm not like, I'm not like super interested in doing that. But at the same time, I'm like, I do love that movie. Like unabashedly. What's crazy is, is that we can love movies. Even if we don't like the people who make them, it's crazy Twitter, but we can do it. We can do it. It's fine. It kind of depends on the situation with that person. I don't know. No, I think I, I, and I get it. And I, I know, I know, I know people have very strong opinions about this and I don't know that I want to get into this at length, in oh, the, but, but I think that depending <laughs> on what, no, seriously, like I think depending on what art means to the receiver can trump, you know, how it was birthed, you know, we, I don't one of the greatest things that I heard somebody say on Twitter in the midst of a very, you know, they were talking about Polanski and Rosemary's baby. Right. And Polanski is obviously a piece of shit. And Rosemary's baby is a masterpiece. And those two things are facts and they can stay separate. You know, like it's Mm -hmm. Rosemary's baby doesn't belong to him anymore. You know, when I watch it, that fucking movie belongs to me. You know, Uh, it, it means something to me and that guy means nothing to me. And those two things can be true at the same time. I think that's true of any piece of art for anybody who consumes it. Um, you know, somebody said it on Twitter once in the midst of a debate like that, that, uh, you know, not all of my art needs to come from good people. Uh, and if that is the standard you're holding it to, then there is a lot of stuff out there that has been touched by really compromised hands that you still enjoy and it enriches your life. You know, so I, I, I think, Paul, we can we can watch an American werewolf in London and like it or you can like it. Um, and we can still acknowledge the fact that John Landis fucking killed two kids. You know, it's both are true. And he gave us Max Landis, the worst thing he, he ever did. did. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's. Been sure to- oh, boy. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> OK, so I think that conversation, there's a, a lot more to it. Because again, it all kind of depends on the person and the situation involving the films, and also like, are they still aggressively profiting off what they did? Mm-hmm. And like, okay, my argument will always fall back to Jeepers Creepers. 
Like, I don't care. I've, how I've never heard of this are. movie. What's what's Jeepers Creepers? <laughs> like, I don't care how if those movies are good or bad or whatever. The fact that Victor Selva is like a convicted pedophile and still proceeded to make movies and work with children. I'm like, no, that's not okay. He shouldn't have been allowed to do that. And every time people keep bringing his name up and bringing up Jeepers Creepers, all those people who are like, well, he's not going to make money off the new ones. It's like, yeah, he might not make money off this new one that's coming out, but the nostalgia behind it will cause more people to go out and buy or rent his movies, which means he's still sort of profiting. And I'm not okay with him profiting off the fact that he did horrible things and we're validating it. And I get that long ago during the very initial, well, no, honestly, it was probably like Scream Addicts 2.0. It was when it was myself and a handful of other guys, and we would pick one movie to talk about at length. Uh, it's myself and uh, Seth, who continues to uh, edit the show, and Dave Haugen and Brian Prim uh, and Hunter. Like, there were a group of us. And one week, Seth actually chose Jeepers Creepers. And so we talked about it at length and that was something that was brought up. And, you know, I, I think we all agreed on the same thing, which is that I have no problem with somebody not wanting to watch those movies. Like, I'm not going to argue if anybody rails against them on Twitter, like that's something that I'm never going to want to convince anybody to watch those movies at the same time. I don't know how much I want to get into this, but. Somebody had a very good point, and it was to slight those films, and understandably so. They said, you know, in a lot of cases, you can separate the art from the artist. But when you look at the themes that are inherent in the Jeepers Creepers movies, there is no separating the art between the artist. Like, it literally, it is a monster making a movie about, like, being a monster and his crimes. <sighs> To some viewers, there is going to be a fascination with that in understanding um, the kind of monstrosities that are out there in the world and how those um, how 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 they work, what they think of themselves. Like I I personally find those movies fascinating in that regard. Because even though I despise the son of a bitch and hate what he did and find that the justice system utterly fucking failed us and his victim and only giving him a slap on the wrist and not forcing him to serve far, far more time than he ultimately did. Yeah, that was bullshit. It was. I do appreciate the experience of watching those movies and seeing uh, uh, a monster, as it were, sort of laying his soul bare, because I, and that's it, that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, <laughs> but, but no, but I get it, and here's the thing, I can't, at the same time, it seems to be like, you know, people want to throw punches over that particular franchise, depending on which side of the line you fall, and me, I'm, I refuse to do that. Like, if somebody gets very angry at even the mere mention of those movies, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, if some people just want to watch them just because they want to watch a fun fucking monster movie, like, I'm not going to throw punches at them either. Uh, you know, the movies mean something different to me. Uh, and But I, that's not me apologizing for watching them. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and like obviously if you you know, already own the films and you're just rewatching stuff. They're not making money of every time you view it. It's more so people like actively seeking out those films and paying the money to see them and knowing that he still gets to profit and not basically be held accountable for what he did. And I always constantly just think about how the victims are feeling in any scenario. Like, no, you know what? We should probably just end this right now because I'm like, if I'm going to keep talking, I'm going to go to some real dark places and we're going to bum everybody out. And like, look at how pretty she looks in her pink dress. And like, <laughs> for how big her boobs are, we haven't seen them. And I'm like, keen on that. They keep teasing like you might, but. <laughs> and even in, earlier in the movie, it was a body double. Yeah. When she gets out of bed and you see her sort of, you don't really see her like you in the her, in the flesh, but you see, you see sort her of little butt and like little butt, but it's uh, <laughs> that's fair. I mean, we we probably should talk about the climax of the film. Oh, I wanted to bring one thing up about this film that I don't know if either of you have seen, but the whole idea that like this guy is obsessed with this ancient Egyptian figure and like recreates the entire design of that tomb in his own house. Uh, Did you ever see that episode of tales from the crypt with Jeffrey Jones, where he basically does the exact same thing? No. Oh, Oh my God. I think I, yes, I've seen that, but that was, it was years ago. Yeah, It's Jeffrey Jones and Anthony Michael Hall. And he's like a professor and, uh, he convinces like one of his female students to come over and check out the tomb and basically uses her as like a virgin sacrifice. Yeah. I do not remember that at all. And I thought I had seen every Tales from the Crypt episode. Oh, it's good. It's like season. Oh, I have it here. Season five, episode nine, Creep Course. Speaking of creeps, though, I mean, Jeffrey Jones. Ooh, yeah. Why? Uh, why does it everybody suck? Because I didn't know that. I didn't know that Jeffrey Jones was a creep. And one day I was like on Twitter, I was like, "What happened to Jeffrey Jones? I love him." And everyone's like, "Wow, you, why do you love him?" And I was like, "Because I didn't, I didn't know he was bad. Well, I just liked I, him in movies. I just I, liked the guy in movies. I didn't know." <laughs> and I do think that. Okay, I'm not going back to our earlier conversation, but just to touch on that for a moment, I think all of us on film Twitter are maybe and I include myself in this for any number of reasons. I think we delude ourselves into thinking that film Twitter is the real world. And so all of the topics of concern on film Twitter are things that obviously everybody knows about. Yes, and Paul, about. <laughs> Yeah, and Paul much like you, I mean, there are loads of people out there who have no idea that Jeffrey Jones is a creep. There are people out there who have watched that horror franchise that we talked about and have no idea what the backstory is. There are people who, if I could watch Rosemary's Baby, and have no idea. They don't even know Roman Polanski's name, probably. Yeah. Yeah, and well, it's like, you know, I just, I like Beetlejuice. I like Ferris Bueller. Like, I like Jeffrey Jones. You know, like, I, I you know, he's great in Sleepy Hollow. Like, I, I didn't know that this guy was who he was, but, like... Yeah, anyway, it, it that is a difficult thing. Like, if I, my thing is this. If, if I love a movie from childhood that's special to me, like, I'm always going to love it. I'm not going to let someone being bad ruin it. Yeah, um, all this like, stuff that he's in, I've already bought 
many, many years before finding any of this out. And I'm like, cool, I can rewatch this. He's not going to make any money off Yeah. It. Oh, yeah. And those people don't make, yeah. I'm like, they don't make royalties every time I put my disc in. <laughs> I can watch Beetlejuice every day and he's not going to see a penny. <laughs> yeah, right. Who cares? Um, but no, yeah, that it's, yeah. Yes, but I do remember that Tales from the Crypt episode. I don't. I need to watch it. I've been meaning to. I bought that box set. Oh, samezies. It's what, a- like five years ago, six years ago, when Amazon for one I day didn't buy screwed it and I'm up. About it. I should. Yeah, and it was like so cheap. It was, it was so- twenty bucks, and they would not fulfill my order until two and a half months after it was released. I honestly think oh, wow. there were there were other people on Twitter who were saying the same thing. They were like, look, why is everybody who's buying the movie or why is everybody who's buying the box set at 170 bucks now getting theirs next day? But all of us who pre-ordered it at 20 bucks when there was obviously a mistake day one, you know, we have yet to get our copies and we're being told, if, you know, there's a long wait. And the answer is obvious. Like they wanted us yeah. to, yes. you know, they wanted, they wanted you to, us cancel. to cancel. Yeah. Exactly. And I didn't. And they shipped me the damn thing. And ha. I found out about that later of the fact, but like, I don't know, a year or two ago, I was like real drunk at someone else's house watching this. And I was like, man, I should have <laughs> this whole franchise. I bet I could find it for like 50 bucks. And like, you guys are going to make me buy this fucking TV and, show, aren't you? Yeah. It, <laughs> it bucks. How and, do you not already, Paul, consult your stacks. Are you sure you don't already own it? I'm because I, the honest answer is this I'm convinced. <laughs> It will get a Blu-ray. Convinced. Yeah, well, you're the holdout. We need you to go ahead and buy it. So they'll it is. So it the will keto. get a fucking Blu-ray. And the <laughs> second I buy it, the second I buy it, it will be announced. It will it's not. Coming out of here's, here's, no, here's, if Kolchak, the series Kolchak is getting a Blu-ray. Do you know then what? Fucking Follow. Tales from the Crypt will. There, there's a difference between those two shows. It's the same reason that we will never get Blu-rays of the early seasons of, uh, well, I can't say that's true because they did it for the X-Files, but the X-Files is also a fucking phenomenon at one point. It, they will never upgrade um, Tales from the Crypt to Blu-ray simply because like, some of them are heavy on visual effects and they won't upgrade them from SD. So yeah, I think It'll, it will only ever be DVD. It, what it doesn't even they're just gonna put it on a blu-ray at some point and not even try to make it look good they'll just say well now it's on blu-ray and charge more paul if it were 2010 i would agree with you i don't think physical media has that unless it's a boutique label and all the boutique labels who would do that would champion the fact that they upgraded everything but they can't do it in that case they will but someone's gonna do it someone's good you know someone will do it tales from the crypt is a big enough property that someone somewhere We'll do it eventually. If they I, bring I it back, to, it. if M Night Shyamalan finally gets his Tales reboot off the ground and it's a massive success, it's going to happen. And they, I don't want to be, I don't want to spend a hundred bucks on a thing that I'm going to spend another hundred dollars on. First of all, it's like sixty, so calm down. It's That's not. Like I just checked. It's like it's like ninety bucks. Oh, mine says 64. I'm on Paul, Amazon. Am I on the wrong site? Do oh, I need to go to... You're on Amazon US, Paul. She's... Yeah. Oh, okay. Our whole thing is that I'm oh, in there Canada. there we go. Like a... <laughs> you see, that's why I'm confused. I need to get on the same page. This is Paul, my I will say, I will say 90 is a damn sight better than 160, like it was back in the day. So. Also, right, you can get right. it for 155 bucks in Canada, too. Wow, the price differences are insane. It's like sixty bucks or one hundred and fifty. Your call. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I have Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood on Blu-ray, so I'm happy. Same. That's, I also that's have the a... thing I really need. I have them on VHS. Well, that's pretty I awesome was, too. I had those back in the day on VHS too. I, I love, I love the first movie. Demon Knight, I think, is just inarguably a a classic film. But Bordello of Blood is a lot of fun. It's so good. I love them both. Demon Knight is one of my favorite horror movies like ever. Um, Bordello Blood, yeah, is just a blast. It's an absolute blast. And well, it's the behind the scenes stories are so funny. Dennis Miller is an asshole is what I got from all of the Blu-ray <laughs> yeah. special features. Like He's like, shit. pay me a million bucks and I'll do it. And then they did. And so he did it. <laughs> but he was not happy about it. I remember him talking shit about it on his, like, it was, what, a Warner Brothers produced film, and he had an HBO show, and he was talking shit about it on his show right after it came out. It's like, ah, but he's a bastard. What an asshole. Get paid a, could you imagine getting paid a million dollars to act in a fun horror movie and being mad about it? I would do it for half a million. I would do it for fucking free. I you wouldn't even I have to pay me. Do it for scale, like it would be. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also not like an actor, so I, I'm bad at that stuff. So that's fair. I just gotta say, I've been trying to grow my beard out longer than I ever have before, and my hope is that one day I could have a beard on the level of Andrew Keir. Like, look at that; it's got personality, man. Yeah. I would argue that I'm already there. Yeah, but but yours I, is like yeah, I like yours. Yours is impressive, but yours is straight up and down. Like Andrew Kears, look at that. It's like assertive, man. It's like an extra chin jutting out. You gotta properly style your your beard. Get some beard oil. Trim it a bit. Have you done if that? I, have you ever combed it outwards? Have you ever tried? I, to do I could I could make my beard look like that if I wanted. I really yeah. could. There's enough hair there. You have the ability to do it, and yet you haven't. Paul, what is wrong with you? It's Andrew Keir. It's Quatermass. I, I like how I style it. I style it a specific way. Don't you want to be Quatermass, Paul? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I do it the way my life, my wife likes it. Okay, <laughs> she likes okay. me to have a big beard, and she likes it a certain way. So I'm just like, whatever you want. Oh, that's I'm, nice. I'm here to make you happy. So it's soft. Hmm? Do you condition your beard so it's nice and soft? It's soft, yeah. Yeah. I do a little... I do some grooming. All some right. Skate, some you do that thing that every dude does when they shave. You have to shave it down in sections so you can get all the different kinds of mustaches. Um, well, my I've mustache, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm careful about, I don't want any hair like hanging over the lip. Yeah. I mean, when you go to shave off your entire beard, though, are you going to shave it down so you have like the big mutton chops and then you have like the Johnny. <laughs> I don't, like, I, I can't envision myself shaving off my beard. That, that would, that would take a lot. I I mean, I've had a beard for a while at this point. Well, we're new friends, so I didn't know that information. It's cool. It's cool. We, we're, we're learning. We're learning. I learning. just want to pitch to you both. Like, Hammer is back. They're making movies at a snail's pace these days, but they are making them. Mm-hmm. Hear me out. Wait, mm-hmm. what? Hammer. Hammer's, Hammer's been making new movies for the last 10 years. So, 12 years. 12 years? 12 years. Well, know any of them I feel like i oh, oh my god yeah uh let me in the woman in black the woman in black black angel of death uh the ritual no not the ritual fucking uh uh what else paul help me out uh the quiet ones um 
apartment when well, like they just did the lodge. The resident the lodge. Thank you. That's what I was thinking. Okay. I thought people were just calling those like horror like hammer esque films and never really put two and two together because I don't pay enough attention, apparently. No, they full on uh, well, we'll, Simon. We'll Oaks. cover them. We're, we're going to cover those. We're going to go right through to the end. Uh, there's going to be about a 30 year gap, and then Simon Oaks bought the rights to Hammer. Several people had tried to resurrect it over the years, and it just didn't happen until they did the remake of Let the Right One In called Let Me In with Matt Reeves. That was their, I think that was their first one. It was either that or The Resident. So. They did Wakewood, which is an excellent folk horror that not enough people talk about. I'm excited to see that one because I've never seen it. Oh, Paul, it's so good. Uh, But I will say, you know, now that they're making movies, I'm just going to pitch this to you both. Just going to throw this out there. Ow, that looked like it hurt. Uh, Beard from the Mummy's Tomb. What do you think? (gasps) I'd watch it. I watched all of that. (laughs) You know how I feel about beards. I thought you were going to suggest that we pitch a movie, so... Oh, I yeah. Let's do it. I'll be down. I've I've written something hammer esque. Oh. So we're 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 squarely in the finale here. I love that cross-eyed look she just gave the camera as she died. At least she didn't go full on like tongue lolling out of the mouth. I always hate it when I don't care if people do that in real life or not. Like it just looks so damn dumb. <laughs> it does. Come on. I mean. Hitchcock knew better yeah. when he did Frenzy. Like, you know, do we have to see the tongue jut out? Yeah, their tongue hangs out and their eyes turn to little X's. <laughs> that's how it happens. That's every how time. Every, every death I've seen, that's exactly what it looks like. From stork to X's. Like, that is that is a story of every life. <laughs> this is one hell of a sequence here, I will say, with uh, the house collapsing in on them and the makeshift tomb underneath uh, Fuchs's house. Like, just honestly, I don't know if they just put a stunt person in the place of Valerie Leone laying there or not, but What's the that? fact that there's a bit of bounce to the body when the chunks of, you know, wall and brick and whatnot are hitting it, it's like, it it's painful, you know? It's yeah. long gone are the days of like fake mannequins being thrown over the wall no, in place of Christopher Lee and Rasputin assume that all of that styrofoam it, um, but there's such a weight to it it looks like there's one I mean it probably is but it had to have been heavy still because like there there are a couple of shots when they slam into her and like her body looks like it takes abuse like to the point where I almost thought that maybe they just, they just had like a rubber dummy or something to get that effect but who knows I I sort of like that it ends with like th- all these people trying to sort of like defeat this ancient evil um and ultimately they're all defeated by it like it collapses their entire you know just everything yeah. falls apart because you know these people had the hubris to try to take on something that was so far beyond them Yeah stop robbing graves like this wouldn't have happened had you not been like yo let's take Don't- a scenario yeah. don't take shit i also I isn't uh, yours she has a uh, so much mascara on but she's <laughs> bandaged so i love that the final shot of the movie ends on what we think of as a traditional mummy with her swathed in yes yeah. exactly. so much fun yeah well and then you, you have this awesome sort of she's giving this sort of unyielding s- stare that is you know somewhat surprise fearful perhaps um 
but you, you have to wonder, like we were talking about earlier, like who's there? Is it an ancient goddess or is it some innocent mortal? Um, and it, it, you know, when you think about Queen Tara's sort of spiritual quest to regain autonomy, you know, where do we land with this? Like, who do you think is under the gauze? I don't think we're given enough information to know, so I can only tell you what I want it to be. I hope it's like a, I hope it's like the end of Scanners with Michael Ironside, you know, um, where it turns out that there's kind of like a fusion of personalities that has taken place. Uh, you know, Cameron Vale, his body burns up, but he's able to thrust his consciousness into Michael Ironside. And so the spoilers for Scanners, by the way, a 30 some year old movie. Uh, <laughs> and the final moment of the movie is Michael Ironside turning around with Cameron Vale's like eye collar and voice saying, we did it. We won. You know, like I, I want that to be the case here. I want it to kind of be both. I want it to be Tara, but I also want it to be uh, Fuchs. So. I like that. Yeah. I want it to be both. Also, if they were to make a sequel, they could have gone in either direction. Yeah. Oh, they could have done a Jekyll and Hyde, but with the mummy is the yeah. lead. Could you imagine, like, you know, her trying to get back to her normal life, thinking that she's okay, but then, you know, in her downtime, it's this Fight Club-esque story where, uh, you know, an ancient mummy keeps coming to life and wreaking havoc when uh, <laughs> when she's got her turn at the wheel. Yeah, well, like it's some sort of id, you know, like like a part of her celebrates that, you know, like is able like the power that she feels when she's embodied by Tara um, and and her sort of claiming her own repression um which i mean she's not that repressed of a character which is interesting you know like because the typical hammer character or female character that would be in this position might normally be a bit more of like a repressed uh you know woman who is you know being betrothed to somebody and you know is in a stuffy situation but this is a woman who seems a little more liberated so she doesn't feel like she needs to escape anything, but she does come from a very patriarchal family system, you know, with her father at the, at the head and giving her the ring and the ring is a symbol of her sort of ties to him. So like breaking away from that and becoming her own person uh, is, is kind of an interesting thought. So yeah, I, I like to, I like to think of them as, as sort of merging in the end. So we all landed on the same page. Yeah, they're the same nice. page. I dig it. I like that a lot. Uh, I did want to read something here before we uh, wrap up. It was something that I wanted to mention about halfway through, but there is this uh, excerpt about a scene that didn't make it into the film that I thought would have been very cool. <clears throat> and I'll read directly from uh, the Hammer story here. Wicking, whose work alongside writer-producer Gordon Hessler included Scream and Scream Again and Murders in the Rue Morgue, delivered a first draft markedly more explicit than the eventual film. Helen Dickerson, for example, perishes after she and a coven of fellow Terra worshippers performing black magic rites in the buff are denounced by the spirit of the cat who will tear them to pieces. Quote, she says you've worshipped other deities, snarls Margaret have called and called for the Christian devil who you should know doesn't exist. Then amidst the coven's naked and bloodied bodies, quote, we can't tell the living from the dead. 
Margaret makes love to her slave, the villainous Corbeck. Hessler was one of three mooted directors, uh, the others being Peter DeFell, then best known for Amicus's The House That Dripped Blood, and Claude Watham. Ultimately, the job went to Seth Holt, of course we know, who had last worked with The Hammer on a movie called The Nanny, which I've never seen The Nanny, but I kind of want to check out now. But I don't know, the idea of there being like terror worshippers led by Helen, you know, all nude, performing, you know, that right being denounced by a cat spirit i uh i i i understand why it wasn't made in a 1971 film you know but i kind of wish it had yeah yeah okay could have been fun could have been fun no nobody no okay i i'm i'm feeling <laughs> I'm, I'm reading the temperature of the room and everyone thinks this was a terrible idea i'm sorry mr wicking sir yeah, I, I had read about his original script with like a whole bunch of sex in it and explicit shit that like is a very different sort of idea than what ended up making into the movie. Um, I mean, that feels more along the lines of what Hammer thought audiences wanted. So I'm a little surprised they didn't pursue, you know, the because there was like an orgy, all the orgy stuff in it. Um, yeah. I I. I'm a little surprised they didn't pursue some of that, but they might've been concerned about censors. Oh, I would imagine that would be the case because one would think that, you know, if the cat or the spirit was going to tear them apart at this point and there is nudity involved, that would have been the mix of, well, nudity and violence that would have been, uh, right. Untenable at that point, even in 1971. Um, no, and it's weird even reading about that. Like imagining them nude. I, for whatever reason, I didn't even, even though it likely would have been in 1971 under Carreras, but I wasn't even thinking in terms of it being like super explicit. I was thinking of something along the lines of like, uh, you know, the witches, Paul, that you and I watched. Remember the ending of that? Like, mm -hmm. I just think it would have been a neat little note to add to this mummy movie to also have, <laughs> you know, this black magic right, as it were. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with that. I think it would have been the black magic stuff could have been really cool. Um, in general, like I like when hammer dabbles in magic. <laughs> I think that's always a fun thing that they didn't do enough. Yeah. Yeah. But overall, it sounds like we all really like this film. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. We should I, know for our I, listeners though, that we did begin on a downbeat note. And that has carried through. <laughs> no, I, I thought this was fun. I, I had a good time. I, I, I personally think, like, I already mentioned it. I, I find this to be their, their best mummy movie. And it's one of my, I would say, favorite. I mean, I wouldn't put it up there with, like, the classic Hammer movies. But it's definitely one of my favorite Hammer films. I would consider... I, I really am excited when we eventually do our inevitable like top 10, because we have to do a hammer top 10 at the end. Oh of this, yeah. Right. That'll be the wrap up. That'll would, be the post live. I would honest to God, consider putting this in a top 10 towards the bottom, but I would consider it. I think too. It's good. And it's just... very good. And it represents the latter part of hammers sort of repertoire. Um, and it, I just think it it checks all the boxes. It it does all the things I want a Hammer movie to do. It's very entertaining. It flies by. Um, and and the performances are incredibly strong. And it's well-directed. I mean, what more can you ask for out of a movie? 
No, no, I get it. Um, I'll just ask you both. We need to set some ground rules well in advance and stick to them. Um, so that, you know, if I disagree with anything, I have a lot of time to try and change your all's minds. Um, can I just say, like, in my Hammer Top 10, the Frankenstein cycle at number one and then get to choose nine other movies? Is that is that cool? Can I just do that? Incorrect, sir. You need to pick individual movies for each yeah. slot. Bullshit. Yes. I hate we this. We cannot combine. We cannot combine. It's that's fine. that's it's not fair at all. Then it's going to be like seven out of my ten top all. ten are going to be all Frankenstein movies. That's Then that is your choice. <laughs> You're going to have to choose that. See, I I personally, my I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but I think, I think we're all going to just have to sort of accept that like Frankenstein's going to have to be represented by certain things so that way they don't take up too many slots. I think that's but oh, no, but no, I'm not I'm not gonna lie, sir. Like if I'm picking my top ten, I'm picking my top ten and I gotta okay. tell you seven of no, them it's fine. seven of them are gonna be Frankenstein. I'm not and gonna choose if if we're holding to this, I'm not all gonna choose, seven like, Frankensteins outrank every other hammer movie for you. That yes. that is what it is. No, that is what well, it is. No 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 it's no, not no, that no, for no. me. I love those movies, but they I would not say that there are definitely certain Frankenstein films that do not rank higher than other films. So it would be like Brides of Dracula would be at my. Don't tell one. us now. Don't tell us now. No, I'm just. This is just. It could change. <laughs> it could change. You never know. Like. Uh, okay. All right. Oh yeah, Brides of Dracula is <laughs> no, definitely that... get knocked off the list. <laughs> no, it's not though. It's not. It'll uh, be high on mine too. <laughs> Okay, but like, okay, Horror Frankenstein, as much as I love it, is probably not going to be in my top ten. Fair. Mm-hmm. Okay. But like yeah. the other or six? Or like Evil. I don't know. Evil's not going to be on there. What? Oh, you evil? always pissed on Evil. I'm not going to put Evil on there. Love Evil. Evil is gorgeous. Evil, Evil's good, but it's not on my top ten. I but think the will Captain Kronos be on your top ten? I think... Allie, I think you know me well enough at this point to know that Captain Kronos will 100% be on my top 10. Paul, I'll ask you this. Okay, I'll ask you both. Allie, Allie, I'll go to you first. Do you already at this point, even though we have a handful of movies left to go through, do you both have a pretty solid idea at this point what your number one would be? No, I'd have to do a list and then I'd have to check my facts and then I'd have to go over all the things and compare this movie to this movie. It'd be a whole thing. Okay. One one is between three movies. My one is is teetering between three movies. And I'll be honest with you, Jinx, it could change the day we record. Like it, oh, there yeah. are three yeah. movies that I think are my favorite and they're tied. And I know I can't do that, so I'm not going to do that. So, oh, you one, can because three, I am. I'm doing no, it. No, you can't. You, I I'm, will be so yes, mad I can. at you. No, I'm doing it. <laughs> we, I'll go ahead. Spoiler if recording day. You're like, okay, so number one. Spoiler alert. My okay, I won't do the Frankenstein cycle. I won't do it. You can't much, you as, as much as I want movies. to. As much as I want to. Well, but but it's only the truth. <laughs> Is the thing? No, it's not. You have no, to rank. That's what's fun no, about ranking. No. Things. Oh, you're telling me that there aren't films and directors' filmographies that, if you were uh, listing them, you wouldn't say. We, are, that's not why we rank. My number one's going to be a tie because it's fun to like force yourself one, to pick. My number one's going to be a tie. I'll do. I'll okay. I'll do this for you. <laughs> I'll do number one, number one, and then I'll do number three. If that makes you feel better, but I'm oh, telling you, God. like when it comes to my favorite. 
there are two movies that I rank equally as as you're me loving have them. To pick. Yeah, you've had the flip coin. I'm, I'm not gonna do it. Allie, back me up on this. He's gonna have to pick. You're, you're gonna, gonna have to have one at one. You 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 don't understand. Like you guys can go I on. I do and understand, but you're gonna have to. Put no, I don't. No, the great thing is, I don't. It's not gonna happen. Those are the them is the rules. Be a better one. I look. I, I hey. I seated the one point. The I, I seated the one point. I will not do the Frankenstein cycle. You all said that you're not cool with that. So fine. I respect. Don't that. Act like you're doing me a favor but by cheating I, on your top ten. Okay. Oh, well, I'm helping you out, Paul. I'm not putting the Frankenstein cycle at number okay. one. So uh, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> the guy who's looking forward to being the only person. In the history of making lists, whoever had a tie, I can't wait to be that guy. You're not. Don't uh, be. I don't be wait. Elric, where he's like playing fast and loose on <laughs> his top tens. We all should aspire to be Elric. I love Elric, but that's where we have to have. We have to have rules. Rules. I'm going to tag him and you in the same conversation. I'm going to ask his opinion, and I know what it's going to be. Well, he's gonna he's gonna tell you to do whatever the fuck you want because it's exactly. your list. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm say I'm gonna have say. I'm gonna have something to say. You know what? How's this? I'm gonna let. And by the way, this is gonna have to be like prior listeners. I if I look at like uh, uh, somebody's Twitter profile and it was created in September of 2021, it's not gonna count. But anybody else, I'm gonna go ahead and reach out there to all the listeners out there. We'll even run a poll. Should Jinx only do? No. Yeah, one through ten. Run a poll. Movies for each four. <laughs> See what happens. Run a poll. Can <laughs> he? That is me. Tie two movies in the number one spot. I'll leave it to you all. If you okay. agree with me, awesome. If you don't, then I'm gonna have to look past your opinions. You know what, doing... Jinx? You were you were asking the last episode, like if we ever do like a like we all get together and we do like a live show, like we should save a movie for that or whatever. That should be our top ten. That's what we should do. Yeah, but we can't. But but it wouldn't be a like a communal like watching a movie together and drinking like. And that's what I would. Yes, if I, but if I feel I like that that could be really. Life, fun, I want to do that. You know what I mean? Like a, like a top ten situation. What if we just watched? Well, it depends, it depends what if we on just how popped on like a, a fa- What if we did a poll and popped on a favorite hammer we've already covered, and did a then and like did a top ten in line with it. I'd be okay with that because then we could choose something really like light and fun, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd be okay with yeah. that. We, got, we have time. We have time to figure this out. So. I'm just saying, like, I, I think that could be a really fun thing to do in person. Or we could prepare. We could like go real all out. We could each prepare clips on a laptop or something. Okay, that's asking a lot out of me. I don't know how to do a lot of stuff on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, you buttons. You're already doing better than Paul and I. Like I yeah, can, yeah. I can open up like a Word document. I can, I can say. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty that's, good. You're, you're outpacing me already. So uh, I'm just, of- I'm just happy to be here. I, I, you know, I still can't believe anyone wants to talk to me on a podcast. So I'm just, you know, if I'm there, I'm, I'm, I'm. That's a win. True. I am yeah. very excited just to be on a podcast. <laughs> You, but Allie, I don't believe it. I can hear it in your voice. You already, you already. I already have so many regrets. Oh <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love it here. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> see, that makes me feel worse because I didn't believe that at all. <laughs> Guys, you know, I'm not good of an actor. He's we just all know too this. sensitive. Allie, Allie, if you just agree, 
with me that I should be able to do a tied number no, one, then we'll be cool. We'll be cool. Don't give in. Oh, that's not how this works. You can't blackmail me. <sighs> there, Jinx, the, you know, you know, you know that like a top 10 list, you know, it, it's fun to force yourself to do that. That's that's the point. Not doing the Frankenstein cycle all at once is my like that's that's all the ground. What if I let you rank the Frankenstein cycle and then rank something and then else? Three more movies. You would you would do that for me? You would let me do that? I would allow it. <laughs> we can't One do time. this in real life. I'm gonna throat punch Paul within two minutes of the recording. <laughs> Alex I gonna knew, hit me I knew just by telling chair. him like I would let him do it, he would be pissed <laughs> just by me saying that. I knew that, that would that would get a rise out of him. But uh, at any rate, I apologize. You can do whatever you want. I don't give a shit. No, I do care. You don't get to do whatever you want. <laughs> I know I, I'm the new one here, but you need to make a choice. Okay, so spoiler alert. I'm going to have a tie for number one. <sighs> so, you know. <sighs> you, you, you all get plenty of time to brace yourselves for that. You two and listeners both. So, and I'll go ahead and tell you what they both are. Because they no. haven't changed. So Save you don't, it. Okay. All right. Save it for the episode. Okay. All right. Okay. Fine. I feel top like... tens. That's what makes them fun. Is you don't know where they're going. I think people will know if they listen to this podcast. But okay. Okay. That's fair. That could right, be folks. the top ten episode. Could be an entry point for people. It could. And then they could go is, back and fun. listen. It'll. They'll have all these gems to go through. Oh my god! They'll go back to the very beginning and hear Paul and I get stupid drunk. That's I'm curious to find the one listener who has done that because I've seen a couple of people like. Uh, yeah, I, I, I say everybody's silent, but I've seen a couple of people like say, Hey, that was a really great episode. Hey, Allie, you've gotten some love. Like, Hey, I love this trio. You know, Allie's a great addition. Like, you know, all that's great. Like I want somebody to just discover the show with one of these new episodes and then go back to like the getting hammered with hammer days and just, you mean just like, to see what they of it. Pull, pull a me and like just out of nowhere and go back to the very beginning and be like, oh. what the hell? Huh, exactly. So different. <laughs> I, I, I think it would be eye, eye raising for people. Uh, Allie, Paul and I used to, if we were lucky, we would talk about the movie in question for about the first third of the film and then the alcohol one. So yeah. uh, it, was, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was something uh, it was wild days nearly killed me. Um, <laughs> Curse of the werewolf margaritas. Anyway, all right, we are three hours and eight minutes into this commentary for an hour and a half long film. Let's go ahead and wrap up. Folks, as always, where can folks find you online and what can we keep an eye out for from you in the next week? Allie, you go first. Allie, go okay. First. Uh, you can find me online at the Alley Chapel on all the platforms. And um, this week, well, not a lot's going on. But I am really excited to announce that if you are in Niagara Falls on October 29th or 30th, I will be there as a guest in my full Necropolis costume with, like, the mouth boobies and all. Yes, you have to mention that every week leading up to it. I hope – well, yeah, I do hope people come to it. And I hope they're all vaccinated because hopefully by then we will have vaccine passports here. That nice. would be awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i from Florida, so it probably doesn't even matter if I get a vaccine passport like that. Nobody's going to let me across the border, knowing where I come from. So, yeah. Sure, that's Understood. a downer. Going to end this uh, podcast on a downer. 
Michael, keep that whole through line going. Yeah, no, Ali, well. I think that sounds awesome. I wish I could make that convention because it sounds like it's going to be a blast. Heck yeah, yeah, it sounds super fun. I, I eventually want to go to a convention where you are and Jinx is. I want to hang out. That would oh, be cool. Hammer gonna figure it out. Happen. It'll be the one that lets us do our live recording. Of yes. Course. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's going to uh, happen. We could do like maybe, you know, back in the day, like Horror Hound would be a good. That was like, going to be my suggestion Horror point. Hound. Like center, yeah, that would be good. Midwest, like travel wise, that's probably about equidistant for all of us. So, Yeah, I'd be down. Where is it again? Uh, they either hold them in Cincinnati, Ohio or um, Indianapolis. Oh, I could drive there. Yeah, that's no problem. Rock on. All right, Paul, how about you? Where can we find you at online? Make certain to point out that people can find you on Instagram now. And uh, what can we keep <laughs> up from you in the future? Uh, you can find me at paulisgreat2000 uh, on Twitter and, as Jake said, on Instagram. Uh, I post pictures on Instagram. I don't know if I'm Instagramming right, but I, I try I try my best. So <laughs> that's, that's what's important, right? Um, you can uh, look out for, gosh, I have, uh, well, I just had a Candyman article go up on Bloody Disgusting. And I should have a new Hammer article going up in like the next couple days as well. Um, so Candyman, because didn't you just say you hadn't seen it? No, it's it's like a it's a write up on the original. Oh, okay, on good. Like my the first time I saw it, because I I saw it at like a really pivotal moment in my horror uh, fandom slash like learning about horror. Uh, so like it, it kind of like hit me, like, for example, the first real like slasher film I ever saw was Scream. And then like two weeks later, I saw Candyman, <laughs> which is a bit of a, uh, kind of like a, a whiplash from Scream to Candyman. Cause they're two very different things. And yet they occupy uh, a similar space in terms of, you know, the subgenre that they're kind of playing with, but Candyman has you know, I love Scream, but Candyman has a lot more to say. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of wrote about the movie and kind of my interpretation of it and how it sort of sparked uh, a, a deeper interest in horror. Um, so that's out there. And then um, I have a article on X the Unknown coming up, uh, which is a early Hammer film, uh, 1956. So that sort of predates the boom the gothic horror boom and it's more of a science fiction film but it it definitely occupies that kind of like atomic monster movie like it's it's very akin to the blob the original the blob but a more serious version of it um so i i have a write-up coming out on that so that should be up in the next few days nice nice <laughs> jinx you owe me a cook um yay it's funny, whenever anybody does that, they all owe me a Coke. So We all owe you Cokes. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that. So I owe Jinx like a lot of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the drug. <laughs> wow. We're no. I'm straight edge, sir. I still haven't uh still haven't taken a drink and I'm very I, proud I've, of you. I've just that's, I've lost that's, track. That's awesome. That's okay, I I'm sorry. That's not entirely true. I took just to see if I had a taste for it. I actually 
had a drink. We're talking one drink of uh, Di Sirono just to see, just for the hell of it, just to. Yeah. And I just didn't really care for it, and I was just like, "Nah, you know what? I think I'm good. I'm just gonna keep riding this train." So. All right, man. I don't know. That's great. Uh, I will drink during our podcast to get together, though, because that is the only way to send this podcast off. So. Yeah. But it's you know it's up to you. Whatever you feel comfortable with. But no, uh, no Midori margaritas. Maybe never again. Maybe never again. That was a bad day. <laughs> anyway, wrapping up. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks you both for co-hosting. As always, Allie, Paul, until next time. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. You can also find me on Instagram at, at Jinx740941. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Yeah, kind of botched the ending there, but you know what? It's close enough.